Hello, and welcome to Kickout 299. I am Rachel, my pronouns are they, them, and I would like to formally announce that I have turned heel and will be joining Bullet Club. And I'm Alicia, my pronouns are she, her. Today, we are bringing you our third and biggest pro wrestling factions episode yet. We'll be looking into New Japan Pro Wrestling and some of the most important factions in the promotion's 50-year-long history of the highest highs and some of the lowest lows. After, we have an interview with our good friend Thistle as they take us through the history of El Desperado and the relationship he has with his faction, Suzuki-kun. So buckle up, because this one is going to be wild. So much like the AJPW episode, we can't take you through every single faction that was in New Japan throughout its 50-year history. However, we can cover a lot of the most important factions that show off how factions are booked and what they mean to the promotion and what they mean to the promotion today. So let's get started, and we're going to start off with Ishingundan. So while New Wolves was technically, by all accounts, New Japan's first stable, consisting of Riki Choshu, Masa Saito, Killer Khan, and Kuniaki Kobayashi. It didn't really take notable form until early 1983, where it became what we know today as Ishingundan, or the Revolution Army. So while New Wolves was technically, by all accounts, New Japan's first stable, consisting of Riki Choshu, Masa Saito, Killer Khan, and Kuniaki Kobayashi, it didn't really take notable form until early 1983, where it became what we know today as Ishingundan, or the Revolutionary Army. Riki Choshu was left out of the tournament for the inaugural IWGP Heavyweight Championship and grew bitter at the whole company. He turned on Tatsumi Fujinami to form Ishingundan, a heel stable against all things New Japan, and particularly against Antonio Inoki. Animal Hamaguchi, Yoshiaki Yatsu, Isamu Teranishi, and Tiger Taguchi also joined Choshu's army as it formed, creating a rather sizable faction to feud with the entire rest of the roster. And people who have listened to our Jumbo Saruta episode know how important Ishingundan was to Jumbo's career and to that period that they were in all Japan. And we're going to cover that in depth as well. But that's why you're seeing them in both episodes, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of cool. You get two sides of Ishingundan there, for sure. Sort of going back to New Japan, this act of Riki Choshu's was one of the first, if not the very first, act of being a traitor heel in a Japanese promotion. And Ishingundan became this really pivotal stable in pushing that archetype, feuding with New Japan's main army through all of 1983 and the majority of 1984. This archetype really becomes a huge part of New Japan's storytelling and booking style in coming years. Fan sentiment towards Choshu at this time was really, really powerful. I was looking at this one 2009 book, Legend of New Japan Pro Wrestling Complete Clarification, in which the author speaks on Choshu's underdog status and this frustration at being left out and how it really resonated with the fans. The actual word they used was that he had sort of this depression quality that a lot of fans just attach themselves to. And because of this, this act of forming a traitor army like Ishingundan effectively skyrocketed Choshu to stardom. 
However, there was a shoot level to Choshu's sentiments. While the unit feuded against Inoki and New Japan Army in the ring, real-life tensions were heating up as well backstage. On September 21st, 1984, it was announced that Choshu, Kobayashi, and Yatsu had parted ways with New Japan and would be starting their own promotion. On September 24th, Haruka Aigen, Masanobu Kurisu, Norio Honaga, Shinichi Nakano, and Fumisuke Nikura also left NJPW and joined the organization, eventually bringing a total of 13 wrestlers, including Saito and Khan, who offered overseas support and eventually joined the promotion in 1985. One little tidbit I found was that when this uh, tension was building, Choshu and Kobayashi flew out to Los Angeles to go get Masa Saito's advice on the situation because they didn't really know what to do. And Saito effectively said, do whatever you want. I'll pick up the bones, which had this air of, you know, this isn't going to go well, but I've got your back. And it was just really, really cool. It speaks a lot to Masa Saito. So uh, sort of leads the way to him eventually coming in to what we now know as Japan Pro Wrestling in 1985. That's a hard line. Isn't it? That was a hard man. I love it. Yeah. So on October 9th, that is when the promotion was officially named Japan Pro Wrestling. And they entered into a business alliance with All Japan, making All Japan its main venue of operations. And Alicia, you talked about the TV deals going on with that and how uh, Baba didn't really even want them, no. but, <laughs> but the TV channel did. So that is how we got this. On the other hand, on the flip side, New Japan suffered a lot during this time period because they were lacking a lot of good native heel talent to feud with their baby faces. Like, like I just said, Saito was in the United States. Akira Maeda had just left to go help form UWF Japan. So now you've got Choshu leaving and that left the roster pretty bare. It was just a bunch of baby faces at that point. All Japan, on the other hand, had some banner years from 1985 to 1987 benefiting from Choshu and Kobayashi especially, as Choshu entered some legendary feuds with Jumbo Suruta and Genichiro Tenru, leading Ishingunden as an invading force against the All Japan roster. As Alicia said, we speak on the importance of this invasion and the effect it had on Jumbo Suruta specifically in our 10th episode of Kickout. Please go back and check that out if you haven't already. On March 23, 1987, Choshu and Japan Pro Wrestling announced the cancellation of the contract with AJPW. By the end of March in 1987, Japan Pro Wrestling dissolved as some of the roster went back to New Japan and some stayed with All Japan. The All Japan Championships were stripped off of the JPW stars that had gone back to NJPW and it was effectively over. Hamaguchi chose to retire. He would eventually return to wrestling in 1990. And Killer Khan, who had joined in 1985, would return to WWF for a final run. Choshu himself returned to NJPW under a different stable known as Takashi Proresu Gundan. This stable was led effectively by Choshu and his comedian manager, Takashi Kitano. 
This was NJPW's take on the rock and wrestling concept espoused by WWF at the time. This was handled very badly. Fans absolutely hated this concept. And Kitano eventually left the company entirely in 1989. If you are looking for some classic and fantastic matches featuring Ishingunden, please check out their invasion of AJPW specifically. I particularly enjoyed Tiger Mask 2, Misawa, Saruta and Tenru versus Riki Choshu, Kuniaki Kobayashi, and Yoshiaki Yatsu from June 5th, 1986. You can find that one on YouTube. Before we started to really get into, I guess, the New Japan research, I really, I've not been all that familiar with Ricky Choshu. That's not where my wrestling interests have sort of skewed. I really haven't gone back into the history of New Japan prior to maybe the last like, year or so of, of, of being a wrestling fan. And what we, when we were talking about all this and setting up this episode over the last several weeks, I was really struck by when you told me that Ricky Choshu and the character that he began to portray when he formed Ishingunden and he turned on Inoki and Fujinami. It, you're, you were right in saying that this character is something that every wrestling promotion has tried to emulate since he did that. It's, it's, it's really astounding the effect that Ricky Choshu had on Puro and how we see that character come up time and time again in not only the other promotions, but in New Japan. And then along with people trying to constantly emulate the effect that Ishingundan had on New Japan and All Japan at the time. Every single promotion has a Choshu. Like they do. I could go into that for hours. And that becomes really, really important, especially as we talk a little bit about Heisei Ishingun, which is the next faction I have. But yeah, you are 100% correct. You will see that Choshu archetype pop up in New Japan for the entirety of its history, even today, it's still a really relevant sort of archetype trope that they employ. But let's talk a little bit about Heisei Ishingun. So this faction started in 1992 when Shiro Koshinaka started feuding with Kuniaki Kobayashi, and eventually they decided to become a tag team. This team went on to feud with Akatoshi Saito and Masashi Aoyagi, and eventually, they all decided to form a proper unit together. Now, in episode 10, we mention that Genichiro Tenru was deeply inspired by Choshu, just exactly as you were saying. And Choshu's time playing an outsider heel coming into all Japan just had a huge impact on him. And Tenru ends up adopting the same sort of character against Jumbo Saruta upon Choshu's departure. This is particularly interesting because later, Tenru was to leave AJPW, sick of not getting the recognition he felt he deserved, and formed his own promotion in 1992 known as War, Wrestling and Romance, which was later changed to Wrestle Association R. War began to show up in a lot of different promotions. As the blogs on NJPW 1972 eloquently put it, Tenru was eager to prove war's wrestlers against all corners, and they led an invasion of their own against New Japan. And in response, Koshinaka and Kobayashi and their little unit led the charge against them as though sort of continuing where Choshu left off in feuding with Tenru, but on the opposite side of things where Tenru is now the invader. 
They originally called themselves the Han Senshukai Dome, or the Anti-Wrestlers Alliance, in reference to how they were against Tenru and his wrestlers specifically. It wasn't until after the feud was over did they change their name to Heisei Ishingun, in reference to Choshu's heel stable, and from there, they became the primary heel stable in New Japan. Heisei Ishingun was extremely popular. They even had their own produced shows with the company from 1993 to 1995, and the stable was particularly known for its exciting multi-man tag matches. Heisei Ishigun lasted close to seven years, which is honestly a really long time. It's probably the longest running stable up until the modern crop of factions that we're going to talk about at the end of the episode. And it had a lot of comings and goings from the factions as a lot of the members left to go to other companies or some left pro wrestling altogether. There were also multiple heel stables forming during this time to feud with Heisei Ishingun. You have NW of Japan coming into fruition in 1995, creating something closer to what we see in modern NJPW faction warfare. Previously up to this point, it was mostly either outsider force feuding with the factions or it was one heel faction against the entire roster. So sort of talking about this faction warfare, in 1997, Tatsuyoshi Goto and Michiyoshi Ohara were members of Heisei Ishingun, and they briefly left for NWO Japan, who were feuding with Ishingun at the time. However, both men didn't really make any progress inside the unit and were kicked out by Keiji Muto and Masahiro Chono, and they were accepted back by Koshinaka into the Ishingun. In 1998, Saito left the group and professional wrestling to focus on his bartending business, while Genichiro Tenru himself joined in and took his place in the group. So I thought it was really interesting that Tenru eventually comes into this group that was inspired by the man that inspired him. So just a very interesting- That is really funny. Yeah, just a very interesting lock of uh, that influence Choshu really has. In mid-1999, Heisei Ishingun disbanded as Goto, Akira Nagami, and Ohara joined Masahiro Chono's Team 2000. Koshinaka went back to being an NJPW main unit member, while Kobayashi and Kimura retired, and Tenru, a de facto free agent, continued supporting the main army and their battles against Team 2000. Before we talk about Team 2000, which is a huge, huge thing to talk about. We need to talk about my favorite NWO Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I've been dying to talk to you all about NWO Japan. So starting around 1994, Chono started teaming regularly with Hiroshi Tenzan, Hiro Saito, and occasionally Sabu. They called themselves the Ukami Gundan or the Wolf Army. Now, I want you to go all the way back to right before Ishingun was formed and think about how Choshu's original group was called the New Wolves. I really don't think it's an accident that Chono created his own mini unit that sort of called back to the New, the new Wolves before creating his own 
bigger heel stable. I think that there's still that Choshu influence there. I really do not think it's an accident at all. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And this unit was still united as being anti-New Japan. They didn't really make too much of a mark, which neither did the New Wolves. So they needed a boost. And that boost did come after Chonu won his third G1 Climax. He officially turned heel and embraced this brand new attitude, this sort of Yakuza cool guy character. And from there, Team Wolf or the Wolf Army would become the foundations of the sister stable to the popular NWO stable in WCW, the NWO Japan. Chono had joined the American NWO in December of 1996 by betraying Sonny Ono. And when he returned to Japan in January 1997, he decided to bring the stable over with him, first teaming up with Scott Norton and then reuniting with Saito and Tenzen. Soon after, they declared themselves as the NWO Japan. NWO Japan ran ramshod over the NJPW roster, inciting a war right off the bat. And a big deciding factor in that war was the storyline between Chono and Keiji Muto, in which Chono sought after Muto as an ideal member of the stable. The great Muta accepted Chono's invitation into the stable on April 12th, 1997. But curiously, Keiji Muto himself did not join NWO, only the great Muta. So Muto still wrestled for the regular army, often playing both sides of the roster. This is a really entertaining little time period to check out because there's a lot of shenanigans going on. This feels very, and obviously there's like, this just feels very WCW, WWE oh my God. <laughs> in, in a New Japan ring, which is sort of um, astounding to me, really. There's this one like spot, I guess, um, promo sort of in-ring segment. That's the word I'm looking for, where Chono literally takes black spray paint and paints NWO on Muto's back, trying to provoke him to join the stable. Like you're dead on. This is so WCW. Like it's, it's very over the top, but fans ate it up. They absolutely loved it. And finally on September 23rd, in 1997, Keiji Muto did in fact seal the great Muta and joined NWO as himself. That was also a really fantastic match and post-match in which Muto rips off a fan's shirt and puts it on the NWO Japan shirt to symbol that he made a heel turn. He's also playing both Muta and Muto during the match. So he like wipes off his face paint real quick. It's really entertaining, but you are absolutely hundred percent correct. It is very, I wouldn't say un New Japan like, but I think it does shape some of what we see in New Japan today with some of the more cheesy heel tactics, especially as we talk about Bullet Club. I think there's a lot right. of I think there's a lot of Bullet Club NWO parallels there. I think it's very uh, important. But before we talk a little bit about that, uh, we have a month later, Muto would team with Chono and they would win the IWGP Heavyweight Tag Team Championship. Though Chono would fail to claim the IWGP Heavyweight Belt in 1997, 
He and the NWO had an insane amount of momentum on their side, with Chono winning Wrestler of the Year in both Tokyo Sports and Nikon Sports for the year of 1997. So talking just a little bit about today's Bullet Club and the parallels to NWO, let's talk a little bit about the civil wars <laughs> of this faction. So you did have a little bit, especially towards the end, we had a real thing with civil wars. Most notably, you have when Chono finally, finally won the IWGP heavyweight title for NWO on August 8th, 1998. But then a month later, on the very next tour, he suffered a really serious neck injury and had to relinquish the title. This resulted in Scott Norton winning the belt in Chono's place on September 28th against Yuji Nagata, becoming the seventh ever foreigner to hold the belt and the first ever foreigner to enter January 4th as champion. Who was his opponent? Well, that would be Keiji Muto who claimed to be the true leader of NWO in Chono's absence, and he wanted rights to the belt. They fought. It's a really great match. Chono was on commentary. And at the end, Muto hugged Norton and showed him great respect. And the rest of the stable came in to celebrate. So the civil war there is over, right? Wrong. Because the rest of the stable came out, except Masahiro Chono. Chono watched from the background as Muto led NWO into a softer, more baby-faced direction, no longer anti-NJPW, and Chono was not pleased in the slightest. And that is what leads us to Team 2000 and the eventual downfall of NWO Japan. And would you say, I mean, I know that you mentioned that fans really ate up some of this stuff that was happening with NWO Japan in the ring, what would you say would be the the legacy of NWO Japan today? Is that something that people still look back on fondly within Japan? It's hard to say. You'll still see, like you'll still see NWO shirts at shows, <laughs> actually, if, if you're looking. Um, I think there's still a bit of uh, influence that you'll see today. I mean, Scott Norton actually just joined Bullet Club, um, if that gives you any clues. I still think that there's a little bit of a candle held, but for the most part, I think um, the influence is probably more from what you see in the ring and in the booking style, uh, especially what you see in, like I said, and I keep saying it, uh, Bullet Club today. Right. As I said, when Chono came back from neck injury in 1999, he was livid. There was a great and really famous little video package of Chono screaming at Muto that you can find on YouTube by searching Masahiro Chono is fucking pissed off. And it's, it's a good laugh. It's a very good video. Chono, when he returned, feuded with Muto for the name NWO. Chono eventually split from NWO to form Team 2000 with NWO Sting Michael Wall Street, and eventually Don Fry and Akira. T2000 and NWO feuded restlessly for all of 1999, trading victories pretty evenly, accumulating in a best of four series between the two units starting on January 4th, 2000. Team 2000 would go on to win the series, causing NWO to disband and for Chono to absorb 
every single member of NW of Japan into Team 2000, except for Muto. This not only made Team 2000 absolutely massive, but extremely dominant. They feuded mostly with New Japan's main army for dominance, including a 10-match series that T2000 eventually emerged victorious in. In 2001, things began to peak and trouble started to happen for Chono. Chono expanded Team 2000's operations out to all Japan, adding Steve Williams, Mike Barton, Jim Steele, and Mike Rotunda also returned to the faction. Chono also challenged Muto for the Triple Crown in All Japan, where Muto had been fighting on and off at the time. However, cracks began to form when Tenkoji, or Tenzin and Satoshi Kojima, began to clash with Chono from within the unit. Tenkozi were the big breadwinners of this faction. They were reliably the most dominant winners and could always be counted on to pull off tag team victories. Tenkozi eventually defeated Barton and Steele in the G1 Tag League, and it opened up this plot line that could very well spell disaster for Chono and Team 2000. However, that never came to fruition. You see, in early 2002, Keiji Muto shocked the wrestling world by defecting to All Japan, taking Satoshi Kojima with him, effectively ending Tenkozi and his affiliation with Team 2000. New Japan as well ended their partnership with All Japan and all of the All Japan members of Team 2000 left the faction. This, however, doesn't just affect Team 2000 and the booking of New Japan's factions. This affects the entirety of New Japan as a whole. So at this time, we are getting deep into the period in NJPW known as Enochiaism. There is a lot we can talk about here. The fall of NJPW at the time period and the rebirth that eventually came about. But to summarize the politics of the company and booking philosophy at this time, Antonio Inoki wished to capitalize on the popularity of MMA in Japan at the time by booking his wrestlers against various MMA fighters, often in fights that the wrestlers were simply not trained and equipped to deal with. And I'll just say too, a really good resource to peruse if you're interested in someone's take on this time period is actually Shinsuke Nakamura and his uh, autobiography of sorts. It's he, his, his, we're going to talk a lot about Shinsuke in this episode, but his recollection of Enochiism and what this time period was like for him and, and other wrestlers is uh, really important to read, I think. And Hiroshi Tanahashi has also spoken extensively about this time period as well, I believe in a series through New Japan's uh, website. So I highly recommend their work if you want a, a different sort of take on this time period. Yeah, it was really startling when you had sent me those excerpts from uh, Shinsuke's book. It was very um, jarring and uncomfortable to read a lot of what was going on at the time, but I agree, it's extremely important to check out. Speaking of a little bit more on those politics, Chono was actually made head booker of the company in 2002, and this ended up putting even more strain on the booking and the company and its factions. 
Chono didn't necessarily agree with Inoki's booking philosophies and his worked shoot style of matches. And he actually had his own ideas on how to embrace serious wrestling. But regardless of those creative differences, one of the major company problems was that the company lacked big stars. Hashimoto had left NJPW on November of 2000, and Muto left the company, as we just discussed, for AJPW. With this lack of big talent, Chono knew that it would be a bad idea to put the IWGP championship on him, the head booker, so he couldn't take over the company and lead it. And Inoki's booking philosophies have successfully at this point buried one of their big upcoming stars in Yuji Nagata after he lost an infamous shoot fight against Mirko Krokop on December 31st, 2001. At this point, they really didn't have a lot (laughs) to work off of. And after failing to get Enokiism and Enoki's chosen shoot fighters over with the audience, they finally sort of decided to create a soft reset. They put the belt on Yuji Nagata after this long, long struggle to sort of get their footing. And they finally got it on him on April 5th, 2002, and ended up turning Enokiism and Antonio Enoki himself into a major heel of the company by creating not one, but two Enokiism-based stables. The first being Makai Club, formed during the 2002 G1 Climax and led by one of Enoki's crown players, Tadao Yasuda, and managed by veteran retired wrestler Kantaro Hoshino. This was a stable primarily of MMA fighters with mostly mediocre records and shoot style wrestlers who all worshipped Antonio Inoki as a god. The wrestlers were generally all masked goons with numbered names such as Makai 1 and Makai 2, etc., etc. The second faction was an army of invading shooters led by Antonio Inoki himself as this sort of evil authority figure. And it was also led by his main general, Kazuyuki Fujita. Now, the best way I saw this described was actually by someone on Reddit who was chronicling Enochism. And he described this as when WWE notices that something isn't getting over with the audience and they make these little cosmetic changes to say, oh, it's better now, such as Baron Corbin is no longer the GM of Raw or SmackDown, but nothing is actually really changed. You're still putting your NJPW wrestlers against these shoot fighters with the same results, but oh, now... Enochism and now the shoot fighters are heel, so they're booing them, so therefore we're doing good. It's is very much the same thing. So to bring it back to Team 2000, in August of 2002, Fujita brought out Enoki's old NWF title and announced a tournament for a new NWF champion, with the winner being the real champion of NJPW. This attracted the ire of Yuji Nagata, and a massive brawl broke out. Masahiro Chono and Team 2000 ran out into the ring and joined forces with the babyfaces of NJPW to send Fujita's men packing for the moment. 
the heroes all shook hands and Chono effectively disbanded Team 2000 so his men could fight along the heroes of NJPW full time. By September 2002, the heel unit Team 2000 had become fully absorbed into the main army, setting up the storyline of NJPW's main unit versus MMA fighters. So one thing that's interesting, and you've mentioned this and we talked about it a lot, is how a lot of NJPW's booking is main army versus heel. And they almost can't have more than one heel unit going at a time. They get this big, massive heel enemy and pit their NJBW main army against them. You're going to see that differ as we get later into the 2000s, but I almost feel like that really hasn't changed. No, not at all. I think that's just very prevalent in their booking. They've never really gotten away from that. And it's also interesting to reflect on Fujita pulling out another belt and saying that this match is going to be for the real champion. I feel like we just saw that between what was it? Shingo and um, I guess it was Osprey. So it's interesting how those little things sort of make their way back around in New Japan. It actually happens again later as we talk about chaos. Um, So this is definitely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that uh, it happens again and again. And I know we joke time is a flat circle, but it feels like in New Japan, it is a very, very flat circle. Let's get a little bit away from that and talk once again about Masahiro Chono. There's going to be a lot of Chono, especially in this early 2000s year. And let's talk a little bit about him going back to his heel work and Black New Japan. Black New Japan, or BNJ, was formed in October of 2004 after Masahiro Chono broke away from New Japan's main army to turn heel, creating a new faction that was distinctly anti-New Japan, just going all the way back to New Japan's faction roots. It's important to note that Tadao Yasuda left the company a month prior, effectively disbanding Makai Club and leaving a a little hole open in the heel factions of New Japan. Like I said, there can't really be that many existing at a time, especially in this time period. As a result, a lot of the joining members of Black New Japan were actually Makai Club alumni, including Super Strong Machine, who became known as Black Strong Machine, Kazunari Murakami, Mitsuo Nagai, and Katsuyori Shibata. Scott Norton, both a member of NWO Japan and Team 2000, also joined, reuniting with his old friend Masahiro Chono. For the Battle Final 2004 tour, Black New Japan formed an alliance with Jushin Thunder Liger's stable of junior heavyweights, CTU. On December 9th, Black New Japan took part in a best of seven series against New Japan, along with CTU, but lost it three to four. These best of series became incredibly common during this time, especially in this specific feud with Black New Japan versus New Japan. They had a six-match series on July 1st of 2005, ending with both teams tying it with each other. And they had a best of five series a few weeks later on July 17th, ending with Black New Japan winning four to one. In all, though, Black New Japan were not 
terrifically successful when it came to accomplishments, having only one belt under their flag with the All-Asia Tag Team titles with Nagai and Masayuki Naruse. And they had only really one other major accomplishment, and that was Masayuki Chono winning the G1 in 2005. Two months later, after winning said G1, Chono challenged Kazuki Fujita for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship in a three-way, also involving Brock Lesnar, at Tokan Sozo New Chapter on October 8th, but lost the match after he was pinned by Lesnar. Following this show, BNJ was disbanded by none other than Riki Choshu when he returned to the company as the head booker, site foreman, and wrestler after not finding any success in his fighting world of Japan pro wrestling company, later known as Riki Pro. It's important to note that a month later, on November 14, 2005, Yuke's gaming company announced that they had bought 27,800 of NJPW's shares, which was 51.5% of the company's shares from the primary shareholder, Antonio Inoki. This was just barely enough, 1.5% enough to edge Inoki's control of the company away, effectively leading to the end of Inokiism as we know it. In a lot of ways, Black New Japan, and then subsequently Choshu's rise back into power and disbanding Black New Japan feels like two different men, Chono and Choshu alike, trying to make a play to get New Japan back on track as they realized Inoki's philosophies weren't going to help the company any further. From here, we start to see the company get back on track and slowly get to the New Japan that we know it today. I would say starting with that would probably be Great Bash Heel. On October 2nd, 2006, Hiroshi Tenzan, coming fresh off of his G1 Climax triumph and a big win over former mentor Masahiro Chono, announced the formation of his first stable. It's really important to note that Tenzan had been a member of Okanigundan, NWO Japan, Team 2000, and Black New Japan all Chono's own heel stables. Announcing his own stable after a big win over his teacher was a huge step out of that shadow for him, stating it in an October press conference before challenging Tanahashi for the IWGP heavyweight belt on October 9th. He essentially said that he wanted to start his own army for a while, but felt he couldn't until he defeated Chono. He named former interim IWGP tag team champions Togi Makabe and Shiro Koshinaka as his first recruits. Makabe accepted immediately, stating that he wished to become stronger and that Tenzin wished to use Makabe's power for his own. Tenzin announced that the criteria for joining his stable was to be strong, bad, and cool and that the intention of his new stable was to revive the old New Japan, stating that he found the current New Japan at the time to be insufficient. This theme of rebirth at this era was not subtle in the least, and you get the sense that they really just needed new stables and new heel stables. They just needed something fresh, and that was really, really critical at the time. 
Tenzin immediately began sending out invitations to other New Japan wrestlers, such as Yuji Nagata, Manabu Nakanishi, and even Makabe and Koshinaka's mortal enemies, Tomohiro Ishii and Toru Yano, asking them to join the group. None of them accepted at first. On October 15th, Tenzin announced that the official name of his stable was Great Bash Heel, GBH, and named their goal to become the biggest heels in New Japan history by causing grievous bodily harm, or GBH. This is a very clever stable name and wouldn't be out of place among AJPW's incredible list of great names. This is by far the best NJPW stable name. (laughs) On the 16th of October, the very next day, Tenzin forced Yano and Makabe to put aside their differences after losing a match to Chono's unnamed army led by himself and Shinsuke Nakamura. This later became known as Black, all caps, not to be confused with Black New Japan. The two problem children of New Japan, Makabe and Yano, compiled with Tenzin, shaking hands with each other after a long feud, and Yano and Ishii joined GBH officially. Throughout 2006, New Japan stuck to their formula of New Japan's main army feuding with two heel stables. In this case, it was Chono's Black and Great Bash Heel. In November of 2006, Tenzan began to tour with AJPW, and Makabe was made the de facto leader of GBH. In February 2007, GBH was joined by Tomaaki Hanma, and then Jado and Gato joined in July. In August, Koshinaka turned on GBH and joined Masahiro's Chono's new stable of New Japan Legends, appropriately called Legend. While this was happening, Shinsuke Nakamura took the remainder of Black and formed his own successor stable known as Rise. After being pinned by the traitorous Koshinaka in a tag team match between JBH and Legend, Tenzin announced that he was going to be taking off some time to heal himself. Makabe, surprisingly, formed a tag team with Yano known as MVP, or Most Violent Players, also a very good name. After spending months sidelined, Hiroshi Tenzan finally made his return to New Japan on February 7, 2008, but after he, Gato, Jado, and Ishii were defeated by legend in an eight-man tag team match, the rest of GBH turned on their leader and kicked him out of the group. Later that same night, Makabe and Yano defeated Giant Bernard and Travis Tomko to win the IWGP Tag Team Championship, GBH's first title in New Japan. Tenzan, without anywhere else to go, went looking for anybody that he could team up with throughout the first quarter of 2008. Eventually, he ended up forming a friendship with Seikigun's Takashi Izuka, and they formed a tag team. However, on April 27th, Tenzin and Izuka challenged Makabe and Yano for the IWGP Tag Team Championship. And Izuka ended up turning on Tenzin and joining GBH. Finally, Tenzin found a home among legend, teaming up with longtime tag team partner Satoshi Kojima. And the two of them would spend the rest of the year feuding with Tenzin's very own former stable. Throughout the rest of 2008, GBH was riding high. On September 5th, 
2008, several members of RISE left to join Maccabay's side in GBH, making them the largest and most dominant heel stable in NJPW at the time. They had the heavyweight tag team belts and the junior heavyweight title to their name and were overall a big and fairly popular stable. However, both of these title reigns ended on January 4th, 2009, with Tiger Mask taking the junior heavyweight title and MVP losing the tag titles to Team 3D in a hardcore match. And then, a few months later on April 5th, Togi Nakabe faced Rise leader Shinsuke Nakamura in a singles match. It is important to note that leading into this match, Shinsuke had sworn revenge on Makabe for poaching three members of Rise back in September of 2008. And revenge is what he got. At the very end of the match, Yano famously betrayed Makabe to help Shinsuke get the win. Nakamura would then assume leadership of GBH, having the support of all members except Makabe and Hanma. And on April 23rd, Nakamura announced that he, Yano, Takashi Izuka, Giant Bernard, Carl Anderson, Tomohiro Ishii, Black Tiger, Jado, and Gato would all form a new unit known none other than Chaos. And with that, GBH as a unit was effectively dissolved and would continue its life as an occasional tag team. This period of time was really interesting for New Japan. GBH matches in general are really interesting. And if you only know like Toru Yano, for example, from how he is now in chaos, it'll blow your mind to watch some of his matches from that time period. Some of my first like experiences of him when I was a newer fan to New Japan and just watching whatever I could get on world was him really bloody in some of these GBH matches. It's, it's a really uh, different experience. And even Rise is a really interesting little promotion. I mean, I think, I think Devitt was even in Rise at some yes. point. Yep. Um, a lot of, a lot of people went through Rise and, um, you know, we're in and out of that one as, uh, as everything leads to chaos. Everything does lead to chaos on multiple uh, meanings of the word, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I agree. Uh, definitely check out uh, MVP in general, Yano and Makabe's tag team was really, like you said, violent. <laughs> That's the best way. Grievous bodily harm. That's, they they said it, they did it. So, but it it was a very interesting watch. After Yano betrayed Makabe on April fifth, two thousand nine, and joined up with Shinsuke Nakamura, as I said, they began to recruit every single member of GBH, save for Makabe himself and Hanma. By the end of the month, on April 23rd, the group was officially named Chaos. They continued to recruit members through 2009, including Masato Tanaka, joining during the 2009 G1 Climax. The group shared the common goal of resurrecting Strong Style, which Nakamura felt was abandoned after the departures of the bearers Antonio Inoki and Shinya Hashimoto. In fact, after defeating Togi Makabe in a decision battle for the IWGP heavyweight belt on September 27, 2009, Nakamura made it his mission to call upon Antonio Inoki and demand he be given the first generation IWGP belt to replace the fourth generation belt that he had recently won, which I had mentioned earlier that this is just a reoccurring thing. 
And he felt that resurrecting this belt would help revive strong style in the company. Inoki had since been removed from the company and was running Inoki Genome Federation, IGF. And Nakamura's comments were meant to provoke Inoki into action. A lot of fans at the time speculated that this could turn into another NJPW versus UWFI situation, which is what effectively sparked the beginning of Enochism. Naturally, this sort of sentiment and idea was met with a lot of trepidation. And the president of New Japan at the time, Naoki Sugabayashi, refused to comment on Shinsuke's comments at all. This ideology of chaos to bring back strong style was seen as a distinct heel move and was addressed by the ace of New Japan at the time, none other than Hiroshi Tanahashi, who opposed Nakamura's beliefs and felt that New Japan didn't need to change from the direction it had finally found without Inoki. Again, it's not subtle at all. No, and it's, it's really fascinating to have the two of them feuding like this and like I said you you really should check out Shinsuke's book you should check out what Tanahashi has said of his own experiences under Anoki it's it's fascinating that this is what it came down to for them at this time period they've they have a long rivalry these two they've had a partnership as well but they have a long rivalry so to see them taking these opposite stances on Anokiism is just a fascinating little point in their relationship in a lot of ways, it is a partnership, even still. In a, in a lot of ways, this rivalry really uh, pushed some uh, ideas of the need for renewal in New Japan. I find that really, really fascinating. In addition to the IWGP heavyweight title, Chaos found relative quick success when Bad Intentions, Carl Anderson and Giant Bernard, won the G1 Tag League of 2009 though they were unable to win the tag belts at Wrestle Kingdom 4 on January 4th, 2010. On April 4th, Yano and Izuka turned on Anderson and by proxy Bernard, who wasn't on that show, but followed his tag team partner and kicked him out of the stable with the help from No Limit, Tetsuya Naito and Yujiro Takahashi, who joined Chaos in the process. This put both the heavyweight tags and the IWGP heavyweight singles titles in chaos, cementing dominance in NJPW. However, this did not last long, as on May 3rd, No Limit lost the belts to Wataru Inoue and Yuji Nagata of Seigigun, which was Nagata's spinoff unit from the main army. That same night, Nakamura lost the IWGP title to none other than Makabe. What then transpired for the rest of 2010 and well into that was a long road for chaos back up to the top. As Nakamura became increasingly eccentric as he seeked revenge for any person he deemed as having wronged him, the entire stable echoed that sentiment as they met unsuccessful challenge after unsuccessful challenge. Nakamura was unable to defeat Makabe in a rematch for the IWGP title on July 19th and unable to make it to the finals of the G1 despite leading his block up until the final day. Jado and Gato were unable to capitalize on a Super J Tag League win when they were unable to defeat IWGP Junior Tag Champions Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega 
on December 26th. On January 4th, 2011, Tetsuya Naito also failed in his attempts at the TNA World Heavyweight title against Jeff Hardy. A few months later, this disappointment led to his tag partner and all other members of Chaos turning on Naito, kicking him out of the stable. Poor Naito. I just remember us talking on Talking Triple Crown about how you didn't like when people got kicked out of stables for their failures. (laughs) So seeing this and seeing it happen in like NWO just sort of reminds me of that. And yeah, the only real success this stable saw was when Davey Richards and Rocky Romero finally won the IWGP Junior Tag Titles from Apollo Gogo on October 10th at Destruction 2011. And when Masato Tanaka won the IWGP Intercontinental title that same night. Fortunes for NJBW's primary heel stable did not change until the very beginning of 2012, when Chaos took a chance on two rookies returning from excursion. And that's right. The savior of chaos joined Yoshihashi and also Kazuchika Okada. We talk a little in episode 10 about Kazuchika Okada and the Rainmaker shock, but the gist of the story is that January 4th, 2012, Kazuchika Okada and Yoshihashi have this lackluster match together to welcome them both back from their excursions. Yoshihashi was already named a member of Chaos a week prior to Wrestle Kingdom. Okada, however, proclaimed himself a member at the press conference following the show when he spoke of his upcoming title challenge against Hiroshi Tanahashi, where he introduced himself as a member of Chaos and explained that Gato would be his manager. A month later, at New Beginning 2012, Tanaka lost his IWGP Intercontinental title to Hiroki Goto. However, the biggest news of the night came from the main event, which was one of the most shocking moments in wrestling history when the returning Okada defeated Hiroshi Tanahashi and won the IWGP title, winning major gold for chaos once again. On June 16th, 2012, at Dominion, Okada lost the title back to Tanahashi. However, a month later, on July 22nd, Nakamura defeated Hiroki Goto for the IWGP Intercontinental Championship and held it for longer than any other wrestler in company history, even changing the straps of the belt from black to white, giving the belt an identity and an iconic design. As far as this reign goes, I definitely recommend checking out his match against Kazushi Sakuraba from Wrestle Kingdom 7. It's a personal favorite of mine. I really, really enjoyed it. Despite losing the IWGP to Tanahashi, Okada and Nakamura's success continued, with Okada winning the G1 Climax of that year on August 12th by defeating Carl Anderson. Masato Tanaka also became the inaugural Never Openweight Champion on November 19th, 2012, and as it so happens, also by defeating Carl Anderson. Though Okada was unsuccessful in trying to get the belt off Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom, he was successful four months later at Invasion Attack on April 7, 2013, where he managed to once again win the IWGP Heavyweight Championship and was able to hold it well over a year, 
only losing it to AJ Styles in 2014. So by the end of 2013, chaos had a stranglehold on the entire company. Nearly every division had at least one strong dominant chaos member or tag team and tournaments were essentially a lock into being chaos front run. At this time, the Intercontinental and Heavyweight Championships were defined primarily by Nakamura and Okada, who were always in some sort of feud with outside forces. However, they rarely had tension with each other, the closest being their 2012 G1 match, where Okada was defeated to effectively solidify Nakamura's leadership of the stable. Beyond that, the relationship of these two and the stable as a whole were comrades, rivals who pushed themselves with their one upmanship to be the best that they could be. And then some chaos hit chaos. Yujiro Takahashi betrayed Okada on May 3rd of 2014, costing Okada his IWGP Heavyweight Championship at the hands of AJ Styles and defected to the newly reinvigorated Bullet Club. From there, Bullet Club began to take over a lot of the division dominance from where Chaos had previously been entrenched. And this goes back to what we were saying, where there really was only one big, big heel stable at a time. And so it was Bullet Club's turn to be dominant. In addition, Yano entered a long running feud with Minoru Suzuki, who lured away his tag team partner, Takashi Izuka, into his own faction, Suzuki-gun. The addition of these two major heel stables in the company would become felt and would end up impacting Chaos's role as the top heel stable of NJPW for years to come. In addition, it became known that Shinsuke Nakamura had given his notice to NJPW on the morning of January 4th, 2016, after having defended his intercontinental belt against AJ Styles, and Okada having finally defeated Tanahashi in the Dome. And he announced that he would be leaving the promotion for WWE. He finished up his contract with the promotion and Nakamura wrestled his last match under NJPW on January 30th, 2016, where he, Kazuchika Okada, and Tomohiri Ishii defeated Hiroki Goto, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Katsuyori Shibata. And Shinsuke finally entrusted all of chaos to Kazuchika Okada. We're going to talk about this more probably as we get through the final more modern staples of new japan but it's important that you brought up that the introduction of of bullet club and that sort of dominant heel heel faction really does change the trajectory of chaos and their identity and we're going to see that with the when we talk about lij as well it's going to become really important about how the rest of these factions outside of Bullet Club are booked into the modern era. Yeah, I'm sure I'm actually going to have a lot of questions about LIJ as we talk about sort of that heel face dynamic as well. And yeah, with chaos, we're not even, they're still sort of playing this somewhat heel mode. It's becomes truly evolved as we get down through the years. So speaking of chaos rebounded from Nakamura's departure with each of its members finding individual success in cementing their star power throughout 2017, with Okada once again defeating his career rival Tanahashi, 
becoming one of the longest reigning IWGP heavyweight champions of all time. Rocky Romero also made a career transition after his storied tag team with Trent Beretta to manage and mentor the group's premier junior weight tag team, Rapongi 3K. But their most interesting get over the course of 2017 was that of Nakamura's former Rise stablemate and rival, Hiroki Goto. Goto had picked up this bad reputation as a choke artist since his defeat at Shinsuke's hands, and he was determined to shed that label by giving Okada's reign a spirited challenge. While he ultimately lost, Okada recognized his talent and was really impressed and gave him an invitation to the group. On January 6, 2018, at New Year's Dash, returning young lion Jay White was offered a position in Bullet Club by Kenny Omega, impressed by his performance against Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom. Turning it down, Jay proclaimed that he would join instead Chaos and he would take over the stable and take everything from Okada. He says it straight to Okada's face. However, Okada had grown so arrogant at the time that he took no notice. But then after a 720-day reign, Kenny Omega took the IWGP belt from Okada, sending him into a downward spiral, and Jay White did in fact attempt to take over Chaos after brawling with Okada and defeating him on the first night of the G1 Climax. Shortly after the tournament, Gato revealed that he had joined up with the Switchblade and later revealed that they had both, along with Giotto, had jumped ship to Bullet Club, which I'm sure we'll have a lot to speak on later. Tanahashi came out to help his former rival, and they aligned Chaos with the New Japan main unit, effectively making them the both the biggest stable in the company. However, as Okada began to get his wins back, the stable began to break away from the main unit again. They don't tag as much together anymore, but for a while it looked as though the main army was going to swallow chaos in the same way that the main army had fused with Team 2000, back with Masahiro Chono taking on the Enochiism units. I definitely found a similarity there and I was very worried, but Chaos still seems to be surviving and doing okay for itself. In fact, through NJPW's working relationship with All Elite Wrestling, Rocky Romero announced that he had reinvited both Trent Beretta and Chuck Taylor back into Chaos after they had left NJPW at the beginning of 2019 to join All Elite Wrestling. The invitation was also extended to the rest of the Best Friends stable, which included Orange Cassidy, Chris Statlander, and Wheeler Utah. We do not know if Kanosuke Takeshita now working with the Best Friends maybe means he's in chaos, but I would find that very, very interesting. <laughs> chaos is one of the most decorated units in NJPW with six IWGP heavyweight and intercontinental championship reigns five junior heavyweight championship reigns and a mind-boggling 12 runs with the junior heavyweight titles and the never open weight six-man tag team championship. And now they have one IWGP world heavyweight championship reign with the current champion, Kazuchika Okada. 
We talk quite a bit about Suzuki-gun with Thistle in our upcoming interview segment. However, I will quickly cover the history of the faction and their importance to NJPW and where they are today. On December 10th, 2010, the then reigning IWGP heavyweight champion, Satoshi Kojima, created his own faction known as Kojima-gun. This faction featured the up-and-coming Taichi, fresh from his excursion from CMLL, Nozawa Rangai, Takemichi Noku, and eventually MVP was added to fill in for Nozawa after his hiatus. Despite Kojima dropping the IWGP title to Hiroshi Tanahashi on January 4th, 2011, the group continued to work together fairly smoothly until Kojima was defeated by Togi Makabe at Wrestling Dantaku in May. Taichi and Michinoku came into the ring after the match, seemingly to rally behind Kojima, only to attack him. Kojima was able to fight them both off before Minoru Suzuki appeared from behind and put Kojima in a sleeper hold. After he passed out, Suzuki declared that Kojima-gun was finished and had become Suzuki-gun. Two weeks later, during the uh, U.S. Invasion tour, Lance Archer made his debut with the company and attacked Kojima, officially joining Suzuki-gun. MVP, however, remained loyal to Kojima. The stable quickly started laying waste to the entire promotion. However, they were ultimately unsuccessful in any title ambitions they had, even after adding Suzuki's close friend and pro wrestling Noah representative Yoshihiro Takayama on November 12, 2011 at Power Struggle. Their luck slowly began to change in 2012 after adding Canadian wrestler Harry Smith, later renamed Davy Boy Smith Jr., on August 13th and Kayentai's Dojo's Kengo Mashima on September 7th. Smith and Archer formed Killer Elite Squad, KES, and managed to defeat Tenkozy for the IWGP Tag Team Championship, being the first to bring gold to the stable on October 8th, 2012 at King of Pro Wrestling. During this time, Suzuki-gun had been primarily feuding with Kojima and Makabe and other members of the main unit, trading blows fairly evenly. However, this tag team win for KES was a decisive blow to the main army, and Suzuki switched his sights over to Chaos, who they feuded with for the majority of 2013-2014, especially Minoru Suzuki himself taking interest in taking the other heel stable down. Archer challenged Nakamura for the Intercontinental title on March 3rd, 2013, but was unsuccessful, and Mashimo quit the stable. Two weeks later, the stable added Shelton Benjamin. And later that very day, Archer and Smith managed to capture the NWA tag team titles, adding more prestige to the stable, despite the lack of success in searching for singles gold. However, this streak of good luck did not last, as KES ended up losing the belts back to Tenkozy on May 3rd, and the newly joined Benjamin failed in taking the ICT from Shinsuke Nakamura. At the same show, Suzuki confronted Okada, the young and up-and-comer and current IWGP champion, and challenged him, but suffered defeat. On November 9th, at Power Struggle 2013, Taichi and Michinoku did manage to capture the IWGP Junior Tag Team Championships, but lost them to the Young Bucks after a mere 26 days. Once again on that same day, KES managed to get the IWGP 
tag titles back in a two-fall three-way tag team match between their old rivals, Ten Cozy, and the Iron Gods. In the first fall, they lost their NWA tag team titles to the Iron Gods, but they came back strong in the second fall where they defeated Ten Cozy and won back the IWGP tag belts. They eventually lost these belts again a few months later at Wrestle Kingdom 8 in 2014, losing them to Gallows and Anderson, now of Bullet Club. Suzuki became embroiled in a feud with Toru Yano and his tag team partner, Takashi Izuka, culminating in a match on May 25th, where Izuka turned on Yano and joined Suzuki-gun. This sort of signaled a turn for Suzuki, where he began to focus feuding instead with Kazushi Sakuraba, who had saved Yano after Izuka had turned. In July, the stable added a masked wrestler named El Desperado, a returning young lion coming back from excursion to add to the junior heavyweight firepower of the stable. We talk a great deal about El Desperado and the effect he had on the stable and the effect the stable had on him in the upcoming interview segment with Thistle. The juniors started having mixed success, winning important matches, but not bringing home any real gold. KES, however, did manage to win back their NWA tag team titles from, once again, Ten Cozy, showing off this tag team booking relay that you see very, very prevalent in NJPW today. Finally, Suzuki and Sakuraba's rivalry culminated on January 4th, 2015 at Wrestle Kingdom 9, where Suzuki defeated Sakuraba in a singles match. However, in that same night, Yano defeated the rest of Suzuki-gun in an eight-man tag match with the help of Noah's Naomichi Marafuji and TDMK, Shane Haste and Mikey Nichols. Suzuki was incensed about it, which led him to showing up in Pro Wrestling Noah on January 10th, 2014, where the stable laid out GHC champion Marafuji, the tag team champions TDMK, and the GHC junior heavyweight champion Atsushi Katoge, beginning what we now know as the Suzuki Goon Invasion. KES was once again the first to bring gold to the stable during this invasion storyline, defeating TDMK on February 11th to win the GHC tag team titles as the main event on a card full of Suzuki Goon versus Noah talent matches. By March 15th, Suzuki-gun made a complete sweep of the titles, with Michinoku and El Desperado capturing Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championships, Taichi winning GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship, and Suzuki himself taking the GHC Heavyweight Championship from Marafuji. Suzuki-gun's dominance led to a storyline where all of Noah's stables, even the heel ones, came together to reclaim the titles. On March 28th, Takayama confronted Minoru Suzuki and ended his alliance with Suzuki-gun, claiming loyalty to his home of Noah, proceeding to attack Suzuki and challenge him for the title. On July 18th, Takayama unsuccessfully challenged Suzuki for the belt. On September 19th, after Suzuki made his fourth successful defense on the GHC Heavyweight Championship against Takashi Sugiura, he was challenged for the belt by Mara Fuji, prompting Suzuki to add a stipulation for their match. Should Marafuji lose, Noah would be dissolved. 
On September 22nd, Marafuji made an announcement that he was willing to dissolve the company should any member of Suzuki-gun were to win the Global League 2015. On October 4th, Suzuki-gun's title monopoly was finally broken when Momo no Seishun defeated Michinoku and Desperado. Finally, on November 8th, Marafuji defeated Shelton Benjamin to win the 2015 Global League, setting up a match for December 23rd, the 15th anniversary event for the company, Destiny 2015, between him and Minoru Suzuki, with the future of the promotion on the line. Suzuki-gun was involved in six matches in this event and only won one of them, including Taichi losing his GHC junior heavyweight belt to Taiji Ishimori. In the main event, Marafuji finally won the GHC heavyweight belt back from Suzuki, saving the promotion. (laughs) However, as Marafuji was celebrating his victory, the storyline and NOAA fans alike received one of their most devastating blows yet as Takashi Sugiura betrayed Marafuji and aligned himself with Suzuki-gun, winning the belt from Marafuji 39 days later on January 31st, 2016, with heavy interference from Archer and Suzuki. Also importantly, prior to the show, Suzuki teased another traitor amongst the midst of the NOAA roster. This traitor was revealed on the January 1st show to be Yoshinobu Kanemaru, returning from AJPW with Go Shiyazaki. They tagged together for the month of January, but then when Shiyazaki faced Suzuki in a singles match on the 31st, Kanemaru turned on his partner to help Suzuki win. A month later, on February 24th, Kanemaru defeated Taiji Ishimori for the GHC Junior Heavyweight Championship. And just like that, after things started to finally be getting better, Suzuki-gun was back on top again. On May 28th, KES lost their tag team championships to Marafuji and Yano, ending their 15-month reign, while Sugiura was defeated by Shiyazaki on the same day in his second defense. In July, Benjamin left the stable due to returning to WWE, and at the end of the month, Sugiura recaptured his title from, once again, Shiyazaki. On September 23rd, Kanemaru lost his title to Kotoge, while on October 23rd, Sugiura was defeated by Katsuko Nakajima. This turned into a downward spiral for Suzuki-gun, signaling the end of their time in NOAA, where in the next two months, they suffered numerous defeats. On December 2nd, Suzuki was defeated by Nakajima in a Loser Leaves NOAA match for the GHC Heavyweight Championship. Following the match, Suzuki-gun entered the ring to show support for Suzuki, but Sugiura suddenly turned on Suzuki-gun, attacking each of his stablemates and quitting the stable. The following day, Sugiura and Suzuki fought in a singles match where Sugiura made a decisive victory. On December 5th, Noah finally announced that Suzuki and his stable were leaving Noah, thus ending the two-year-long storyline. It was later reported by Dave Meltzer that without Suzuki-gun in the promotion, attendance fell a startling 29%. So while fans did not like this storyline at all, and Suzuki-gun did not help the promotion as it was said to originally be intended, the promotion did not see any improvement immediately after they left either. And we will touch on that and the effect it had, especially on El Desperado with Thistle. On January 5th, 2017, Suzuki-gun made its official return to New Japan. 
all eight members of the stable attacking the promotions champions after a 10-man match between Chaos and New Japan's main unit. This attack ended with Suzuki delivering a gotch-style pile driver to IWGP heavyweight champion Okada, claiming that the faction would be waging war on all of New Japan and look to take over all of the promotions titles. This angle led to multiple title challenges from the faction that month, including Suzuki challenging Okada on the February 5th at New Beginning 2017. However, they were all unsuccessful, unable to replicate the storyline that they had going in Noah. On March 6th, Kanemaru and Taichi did capture the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Champions from Roppongi Vice. While Suzuki heavily interfered in the match between Zack Sabre Jr. and Katsuhiro Shibata for the Revolution Pro British Heavyweight Championship, helping Sabre Jr. win the championship. Following the match, Zack Sabre Jr. joined the stable, bringing the title with him. After this, Sabre began chasing Hiroki Goto's never openweight championship, but failing, making Suzuki step up and defeat Goto earning his first singles title in New Japan. That actually blew my mind. <laughs> I did not know that. And KES would win IWGP Tag Team Gold for the stable once again in a three-way feud for the title. However, on January 4th, 2018, at Wrestle Kingdom 12, Suzuki and KES both lost their respective titles, with Suzuki in particular losing his trademark hairstyle in an excellent hair versus hair match in a never rematch against Hiroki Goto. I just rewatched that match. It was really, really good. Suzuki, however, would quickly rebound by gaining the IWGP Intercontinental Championship from Hiroshi Tanahashi on January 27th at New Beginning 2018 by referee stoppage. On March 6th at NJPW's 46th anniversary show, Desperado and Kanemaru would capture the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championship from Roppongi 3K in a three-way match that also included Los Ingernables de Japón, Hiromu Takahashi, and Bushi. The rest of 2018, however, was essentially Zack Sabre Jr.'s year. He became the second foreigner to win the New Japan Cup and would soon challenge Kazuchika Okada for his IWGP heavyweight title on April 1st at Sakura Genesis. He would lose, but his performance truly solidified him as Suzuki-gun's new ace, putting him just behind Suzuki as the most dangerous member. It's also important to note that this year led to Taichi moving up to heavyweight, and soon after, he won his own first singles title in NJPW, also the Neverweight Openweight title, also winning it from Hiroki Goto on September 17th at Destruction and Beppu. On January 4th, 2019, at Wrestle Kingdom 13, Desperado and Kanemaru lost their IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championships to Bushi and Shingo Takagi, and Sabre defeated Tomohiro Ishii to win back the RevPro British Heavyweight Championship. The following day, at New Year's Dash, Suzuki-gun faced LIJ in a 10-man tag team match where Taichi pinned the newly crowned IWGP Intercontinental Champion to Tetsuya Naito and immediately challenged him for the title afterwards. Backstage, Suzuki and Sabre also issued a challenge to Evil and Sonata for the tag team titles. After, Kanemaru and Desperado followed suit and demanded a rematch against Bushi and Takagi. 
All three title matches took place on the second night of the new beginning in Sapporo at February 3rd, where all of Suzuki-gun were defeated in their respective title matches, once again squashing Suzuki-gun's attempt at the full roster domination that they had achieved in another promotion. On January 7th, 2019, NJPW chairman Naoki Sugabayashi announced that Takashi Izuka would retire from professional wrestling the following month. On May 10th, 2019, Taichi presented Doki for Best of the Super Juniors 2019 on short notice as a replacement for the injured El Desperado. During the tournament, Doki officially became a member of Suzuki-kun. For the rest of 2019, the group found minor success with both the RevPro British title and the Never Openweight belt with Zack trading the belt back and forth nigh-endlessly with Hiroshi Tanahashi and Taichi winning the Never Back from Jeff Cobb, only to lose it once again on the first defense to Tomohiri Ishii. This trend continued into Wrestle Kingdom 2020 with only Sabre Jr. winning his match against Sonata to retain the British heavyweight title. Suzuki did come in to challenge John Moxley for the United States heavyweight title after John won it from Lance Archer on night one and defended it from Juice Robinson on the second night. This match would come into fruition on February 9th, 2020 at New Beginning in Osaka and Suzuki would ultimately lose it. After Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kota Ibushi won the IWGP heavyweight tag team championship, Saber and Taichi would attack Tanahashi and Ibushi, setting themselves up for the next challengers. They would later win the titles on July 12th at Dominion. It was also during this time that Archer would quietly leave Suzuki-gun and New Japan as a whole to move on to All Elite Wrestling. Speaking of that agreement that New Japan has with All Elite Wrestling that led to chaos bringing the best friends into their stable, Suzuki makes an appearance at All Elite Wrestling on September 5th at All Out. He came out and confronted John Moxley, and on the episode of Dynamite directly following All Out on September 8th, Moxley beat Suzuki in his debut match for the promotion. The next day, it was announced that he would reunite with Lance Archer under the Suzuki-gun name to confront Moxley again on the 15th of September episode of Dynamite. Suzuki-gun has found a little bit of success again with Zack Sabre Jr. recently winning the 2022 New Japan Cup once again and El Desperado becoming two-time IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion. It's interesting to reflect on, you know, we're so all Japan-brained having just come off of two big episodes around all Japan. But it's really interesting to think about the third incarnation of Burning and how when they came into All Japan in uh, 2013, it immediately became Burning versus All Japan. They had huge success right away. They were extremely dominant for months, probably a little bit slower than Suzuki-gun to capture titles. But when you compare that to the the early success of Suzuki-gun coming into NOAA, dominating them immediately, grabbing up all the titles... It's night and day how those stories were received, whereas All Japan versus Burning was the hottest storyline in wrestling when that was playing out. And what happened with Suzuki-gun in Noah was detrimental to Noah and then to Suzuki-gun themselves. So it's just really weird and, and really interesting to reflect on that. But it worked in the case of All Japan and Burning. It did not work in the case of Noah and Suzuki-gun and the ramifications of that played out for a very long time for both of them. 
I have a question. Why do you think that is? Do you think it has to do with the stable itself or with the promotion that they're coming into? I don't think it has to do, I, like I, I never blamed Suzuki Goon for what happened in Noah. I blamed the bookers. I blamed Jado. I blamed yeah. Jado. I was just for, uh, about to ask the Jado question. They, they put this group like Suzuki Goon in Noah and Noah historically, that's not really, we're going to have to do all of this when we go over Noah's factions in that upcoming episode, but that's not really how Noah's factions had been used. And, and we talk about this with Thistle, but it's not to say that there are aspects of the Suzuki Goon invasion of Noah that aren't compelling from a storyline perspective. But did this work in an environment like Noah with a very specific fan culture? No, like it just, it, it wasn't going to work. It works in a company like New Japan. This, that's a very New Japan-esque story, right? And especially oh, yeah. all the factions that we've been talking. Oh, yeah. This sort of storyline is going to thrive in New Japan. And when we're talking about burning versus all Japan, that sort of storyline also makes sense in all Japan because they had seen that in the early 2000s mm-hmm. um, and into the mid 2000s before burning 3.0 rocked up, right? So that's kind of expected, I think, in both of those promotions. Whereas an invading force like this in Noah to this degree, so dominant, just making the Noah roster not look good. This, this didn't come across as a way to uplift the Noah roster and to really propel stories forward and make new stars out of the Noah roster. This looked like a way to put the boot on the neck of Noah. And that's the way that it comes across. That's why it ultimately didn't work. But again, I don't blame Suzuki Goon. I blame the bookers. I blame Jado. Um, I blame the people who were in charge at the time. And I will say too, to this point of, of Suzuki Goon and why I find them to be very effective, especially at the, at the time, because we will talk about this more with this as well. Suzuki-gun today are not the Suzuki-gun of yesterday. They're very different now in temperament. They used to be such a villainous group of just heels. They were so mean and so nasty, and they're not that way anymore. When I started watching New Japan, I had a world subscription, but I was also watching a lot of New Japan on Axis TV, and they would highlight three wrestlers in a bunch of their matches, and that was Nakamura, Okada, and Tanahashi. And I remember taping blocks and blocks and blocks of these matches, and they were sort of you know, they would give you like the the highlights of these feuds and they would do a really interesting job of explaining this stuff. And you had Mauro Ronaldo on commentary too, giving you these really great anecdotes about all the different wrestlers. But some of my favorite episodes were the ones where it was Minoru Suzuki coming out to confront Okada, coming out to confront Nakamura and challenging for the Intercontinental and the IWGB Heavy. And there was something so effective in that nasty, just dominating heel force of Suzuki with everyone in Suzuki Goon behind him coming out to confront people like Nakamura, people like Okada. That is so effective. They can, Suzuki Goon have been incredibly effective in their role when they used to be very much straightforward heels. So again, I don't ever blame Suzuki Goon for what happened in Noah. I blame the people that were booking Noah at the time, Jado. And what's interesting is that Suzuki Goon's invasion storyline could have worked in NJPW, but when they came back in 2017, 
they really weren't successful at all and continually lost a lot of those big domination matches. Well, you pointed this out to me too. And like, it really struck me when you did, but they bring Suzuki Goon back in. They try to do that in storyline where they're going to take all the belts and they're going to dominate New Japan. And then what immediately happens, they lose every single match and they look kind of foolish. And doesn't that make Noah look dumb on the way back in? Yep, I mean, exactly. isn't that just like a final like knife in the back? So that that is certainly there. That you know that that really does say a lot. And again, I can't blame a single person in Suzuki Goon. And I actually um, we talk about this with Thistle too. But you know, I feel really bad <laughs> for, for for them at the time. I don't think oh, that the wrestlers that, you know are to blame for for that for that just nastiness during that time period. I, I blame management. Very well said. Extremely well said. Well, let's talk about a uh, heel stable that did manage to take over New Japan. What, shall we? <laughs> what a segue. So <laughs> we're going to talk about Bullet Club. But before we jump into the meat of Bullet Club history, it's important to set the scene for how the faction formed. So Fergal Devitt, or Prince Devitt, as he would become known in Japan, was an Irish wrestler who went through the New Japan dojo system. And by the spring of 2013, he was in his third reign with the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. It was a six-time IWGP Junior Tag Team Champion, twice with Minoru Tanaka and four times with Rusuke Taguchi as Apollo Gogo. He was a baby-faced gaijin that enjoyed a certain amount of success and popularity, but his character had remained largely the same from about 2006 to 2013. On March 3rd, 2013, Devitt had a singles match against Hiroshi Tanahashi at the New Japan Anniversary Show. He lost the match, and very uncharacteristically, Devitt refused to shake hands with Tanahashi post-match. This match marked a noticeable change in his demeanor. He became really aggressive and hostile in the ring and on the mic. Um, I think this is the one where he calls Tanahashi a dickhead. Tension started to form between him and Taguchi when Taguchi wouldn't go along with this new behavior. And I, I'm just going to say off the top, Taguchi's performance as a baby face up against Bullet Club in this era is magnificent. So I highly recommend if you're going to go back through these matches, Taguchi is actually someone to watch because the way that he can portray this bleeding heart baby face in the face of such oppression in the form of Bullet Club is outstanding. At New Japan's invasion attack on April 7th, the time splitters Alex Shelley and Kushida successfully defended their IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Championships against Apollo Gogo, Prince Devitt, and Rusuke Taguchi. After the match, Devitt turns on Taguchi and aligns himself with Bad Luck Fale, formerly known as King Fale, who had just returned from a 14-month excursion in the United States. Devitt beats down Taguchi, Fale attacks Captain New Japan. Devitt even goes as far as unmasking him and then sticking the mask in the back of his trunks. And Devitt then picks up the mic and declares, no more Apollo 55, no more Mr. Nice Guy. He introduces the crowd to his bouncer, the underboss, Bad Luck Fale. Then he says, and you're looking at the real rock and roller, Prince Devitt, while making finger gun motions because he's a real shooter. After that, he lets Fale carry him to the back on his shoulders, wearing Captain New Japan's mask and holding his singles title in the air. On May 3rd at Wrestling Dontaku, Devitt and Fale had a match against Taguchi and Captain New Japan, which they won very decisively. 
Later on in the card, Carl Anderson had a singles match against Hiroshi Tanahashi. Tanahashi won, and when he went to shake Carl's hand post-match, Prince Devitt and Fale entered the ring and began beating down Tanahashi. Tamatanga had been at ringside and got into the ring to seemingly protect Carl Anderson from this beatdown. And the two of them look very confused. Carl even audibly asked Devitt, what was that for at one point? Devitt asks Carl to join him. He's making the finger gun motion repeatedly. Carl seems to deliberate for a moment before turning around and delivering a stun gun to Tanahashi, who had just gotten to his feet. Tamatanga joins in on beating up Tanahashi. The four gaijin clear the ring of young lions who had just jumped in to help the ace. And then they too sweet for the very first time over Tanahashi's body. So with that, Prince Devitt, Bad Luck Fale, Carl Anderson, and Tamatanga had joined forces to form an all gaijin unit that would then become known as Bullet Club. In a Q&A with CrossCultureFire.com, Devitt said of the faction name, the name again was my idea. I had been using the real shooter and pistol sign. And then of course, machine gun Carl Anderson had his thing. So I wanted to tie them together. On Talk is Jericho, he told a similar story and mentioned he didn't want the at the start of the name. He didn't want it to be three letters like the NWO, even though we'll talk about how they pull a lot of inspiration from NWO. And he was trying to find a way to tie all of their gimmicks together and he landed on Bullet Club. From there, Devitt almost immediately goes on to sweep the 2013 Best of the Super Juniors, his second Best of the Super Juniors win, and challenges Hiroshi Tanahashi to a match. Devitt was signaling that he wanted to join the heavyweights and he wanted to be the first wrestler to hold the junior and heavyweight belts simultaneously. On June 22nd at Dominion, Devitt defeats Tanahashi after some interference from his stablemates, which have been happening a lot since they formed. You're really starting to see what we know now as the Bullet Club match formula start to take shape in these early days of the faction. Devitt used the win there to challenge reigning IWGP heavyweight champion Kazuchika Okada to a match, and Okada accepted under the condition he defend his IWGP junior belt against Ghetto first. Devitt got past the Ghetto defense on July 5th, and the match with Okada was set for July 20th. Devitt loses despite Bullet Club interfering with the match. From there, Devitt and Anderson entered the G1 tournament that August. Devitt defeated Tanahashi during an A-block match in that tournament, but their feud culminated in a lumberjack match on September 29th at Destruction, with Tanahashi proving victorious in the end. So during this time, Ray Bucanero and Terrible were working in Japan as members of the Bullet Club. Tama Tonga, Bucanero, and Terrible formed Bullet Club Latino America, and Tama and Bucanero did briefly hold the CMLL World Tag Team Championship, but had to vacate the titles when Bucanero was injured. On October 25th, during a Road to Power struggle show, Matt and Nick Jackson, known as the Young Bucks, made their New Japan debut, joined Bullet Club, and announced they'd be entering the 2013 Super Juniors Tag Tournament. The Bucks had success right away, going on to win that tournament by defeating Forever Hooligans, Alex Kozlov, and Rocky Romero, and then becoming IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Champions by defeating Taichi and Taka Michinoku of Suzuki-Goon. On the heavyweight side, Anderson entered that year's World Tag League with the debuting Luke Gallows, his new tag team partner. Gallows had been announced as a tournament participant and new Bullet Club member on November 11th and previously spent time in WWE and TNA. Anderson and Gallows won World Tag League, 
by defeating Hiroshi Tenzan and Satoshi Kojima in the finals. At Wrestle Kingdom 8 on January 4th, 2014, they would go on to defeat the champions KES, Lance Archer, and Davy Boy Smith Jr. to become IWGP Tag Team Champions. On the same night, Devitt would lose his IWGP Junior Heavyweight title to Kota Ibushi after 419 days as champion. To recap where we are so far in Bullet Club's first eight months, they're an incredibly dominant force, with Devitt having kept his singles title for most of that time, and both new tag teams becoming champions of their respective divisions. They're doing a lot of Western heel tactics that the Bullet Club has become infamous for. Eye pokes, low blows, distracting the referee, just being generally really rough, rowdy, and frankly, super annoying. They're doing a lot of like crotch chops, a lot of suck it, like a lot of that DX stuff um, that you guys will know from like WWE and that sort of thing. By February, 2014, Devitt started feuding with his former partner Taguchi again, and this keeps him busy. Devitt mostly comes away the victor during that tour, but Taguchi does get a win over Devitt in a tag, which leads to a loser leaves town match for invasion attack on April 6th, though it seems like the stipulation was never actually made official. During that match, Devitt argued with the interfering Bucks, who seemed unwilling to obey his orders not to get involved in the match. The Bucks turn on Devitt. They beat him down outside of the ring before throwing him back into it. But Devitt does a dive to the outside onto the Bucks, throws them over the guardrail into the seats, and that allows him and Taguchi to finally go one-on-one for the rest of their match. Devitt was ultimately defeated by Taguchi, and he even has this moment where he sits on Devitt's chest and does a finger gun down toward Devitt and one to his own head. Afterward, Taguchi and Devitt shook hands, which seemed to suggest by commentary that Devitt was done with Bullet Club. The very next day, New Japan announced Devitt's resignation from the company, and we all know that he went on to join WWE's NXT, a place in WWE ultimately being his childhood dream. This is where we start to see the pattern of Bullet Club leaders being jumped or kicked out to end their time with the faction, which is really interesting because you'll hear the members talk about Bullet Club being a brotherhood and being for life, except when it no longer is. Now, Bullet Club signaled a new era had begun for the faction on the very same night the Bucks turned on Devitt because later on in the card, AJ Styles debuted, attacked Kazuchika Okada after his tag match with Yoshihashi against Bad Luck Fale and Tamatanga, and revealed he was the newest member of Bullet Club. Styles at that point was very well known for his time in TNA and the American Indies. He hit his finisher, the Styles Clash, on Okada in the ring, and intimated that Okada was still the young boy he had known in TNA before announcing his intentions to take the IWGP heavyweight title from Okada, the reigning champion at the time. Now, here is the interesting thing about AJ Styles and his introduction to Bullet Club. Each era of Bullet Club is ultimately defined by who the leader is, but AJ Styles was never actually the leader of Bullet Club in Japan, at least according to him. In an interview with Wrestling Inc., AJ said, I'm going to say this, at no point was AJ Styles ever the leader of the Bullet Club. I never said it. No one ever said it about me that was in our group. Our motto was, we don't follow anybody. Popular fan sentiment is that Carl Anderson was the leader of Bullet Club during this time, but it's extremely fair to call the 2014-2016 era of Bullet Club that we're about to cover the AJ Styles era as he was the star of the show and involved in main event level feuds. It's also important to note that Styles was only initially brought in to work the major New Japan shows and was still working the American Indies in Ring of Honor when he initially debuted, which will become important for Bullet Club's global expansion, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
On May 3rd at Wrestling Don't Talk Who, Styles defeated Okada to become IWGP Heavyweight Champion for the first time. Yujiro Takahashi cost Okada the match by turning on him, which allowed Styles to capture the win. Takahashi had been signaling his displeasure with his position in New Japan and acting more hostile towards his chaos stablemates prior to Dontaku, and with this betrayal, he joined Bullet Club. This was really notable because prior to Yujiro joining Bullet Club, they were a Gaijin-only stable, so he's Bullet Club's first non-Gaijin member. May 2014 is when New Japan began partnering with Ring of Honor for tours and Bullet Club were a massive part of the promotion for those tours. The Young Bucks were actually already simultaneously holding the IWGP Junior Tag Belts and the Ring of Honor Tag Belts, establishing Bullet Club's connection to the West. The Bucks wound up losing both sets of titles by Dominion on, on June 21st, but Bullet Club remained dominant with Yujiro picking up the Never title after interference from his stablemates, Fale defeated Shinsuke Nakamura for the Intercontinental title, and the Good Brothers retained their heavyweight tag titles. With Styles as the reigning IWGB heavyweight champion, Bullet Club had effectively captured all of the heavyweight titles. And you will see this multiple times throughout the history of Bullet Club. They create a stranglehold over the titles, especially both sets of tag titles. Another new member of Bullet Club in 2014 was Jeff Jarrett, who had founded Global Force Wrestling that April. He joined on August 10th after helping Bullet Club beat down poor Tanahashi, who had just beaten AJ Styles in a singles match. So as we begin to close out 2014, Fale lost the Intercontinental title back to Nakamura at Destruction on September 21st. And I will say, I personally really love those Fale Nakamura matches. They might not be for everyone, but again, this is my... Access TV nostalgia. I used to watch those matches obsessively and I still really enjoy them. So I recommend them to you. And then at King of Pro Wrestling in October, Styles lost the IWGP Heavy to Tanahashi and Yudro dropped the Never title back to Tomohiro Ishii. This left the Good Brothers with the heavyweight tag titles. Another notable member of Bullet Club joined at Power Struggle on November 8th, Kenny Omega. Omega was most well-known for his work with DDT, but recently signed with New Japan. During a press conference in October 2014, Kenny had rejected the idea of joining Bullet Club, saying that he was not a normal foreigner because he had been living in Japan for several years at that point, and Kenny speaks fluent Japanese, mind you. However, at Power Struggle, after Rusuke Taguchi successfully defended the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title against Taichi, Bullet Club entered the ring with them. This segment is incredible to watch, by the way. This is so <laughs> cheesy. It's, it's amazing. They enter the ring with a masked man that Carl Anderson declared would win the IWGP junior title. And when the mask was pulled away, it's Kenny Omega who said, I told everyone that I wanted to be on the new Japan team, that I wanted to wear the lion mark. I lied. The only thing I want is your money. Not only that, I want that championship belt. And this set up a match between Omega and Taguchi for Wrestle Kingdom 9. And with Omega joining Bullet Club, he stopped giving promos to the crowd in Japanese. He started to speak in English only. At Wrestle Kingdom 9 in 2015, Kenny Omega defeats Rusuke Taguchi for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title, and Gallows and Anderson dropped their heavyweight tag belts to Mayu Tag, Katsuyori Shibata, and Hiroki Goto. Post-Wrestle Kingdom 9, Cody Hall, the son of Scott Hall, was introduced as the Bullet Club's young boy. During Fantastica Mania, the tour co-produced by New Japan and CMLL, Mephisto joined Bullet Club via Bullet Club Latino America. Now, Bullet Club continued to stay top of mind in their respective divisions as the Bucks traded the junior tag belts back and forth a bit, 
The Good Brothers took the heavyweight belts back from Mayutag in their first defense of those belts, which will never be okay with me, no matter how many years go by. And like I said before, the way that Bullet Club is used for many years during this time period is just very upsetting. And especially in the tag division, you'll see it the most. These belts are constantly taken off people in these, after these very quick runs and given right back to Bullet Club. And it's like these divisions have no way to grow. And it's very demoralizing. Omega and Styles continue to defend their singles belts. And at Dominion on July 5th, Kenny Omega lost his title to Best of the Super Juniors winner Kushida, another fantastic babyface when he has to go up against Bullet Club. And AJ Styles lost the IWGP heavyweight title to Kazuchika Okada. The latter is actually a personal favorite of mine. And that Dominion was just the first Peresu show I got up in an ugly time for because I was so invested in Okada being able to overcome Styles. I do recommend their feud to this day because Styles plays a perfectly believable threat with a well-protected finisher that when hit signaled the end. And Okada played the young babyface ace struggling against a foreign enemy to a T. Close out 2015, the Bucks would drop their IWGP junior tag titles to Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish and enter Chikara's 2015 King of Trios tournament because Bullet Club was everywhere during this time period. They faced Team AAA, Phoenix, Drago, and Arostar in the finals and lost to them. Omega would regain the IWGP junior heavyweight title from Kushida with the help of outside interference from Carl Anderson. On October 23rd, Chase Owens joined Bullet Club, and this will be the only time we mention him. Please Google Chase Owens speaking out to learn more about him. At Wrestle Kingdom 10, Omega dropped his title back to Kushida. The Good Brothers lost to Togi Makabe and Tomoyaki Hanma, and AJ Styles was defeated by Shinsuke Nakamura in a match for the Intercontinental title. Not long after the event, it was announced that Styles, Gallows, and Anderson had resigned from New Japan. They would all go on to perform for WWE. The very next day, Omega laid Styles out with the one-winged angel at New Year's Dash after their winning effort in a tag against Shinsuke Nakamura and Yoshihashi. The rest of Bullet Club eventually joined in on beating him down, and Omega has this incredible anime villain-esque promo around this. You should watch it. I, I do recommend it. And he declared Bullet Club is fa 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 for life, except for AJ Styles. With Styles fired, Omega assumed leadership from there and announced he was done with the junior heavyweight division and would be pursuing a match against Nakamura for the Intercontinental title next after pinning him in that tag. With Styles gone, the Kenny Omega era of Bullet Club had begun. This era of Bullet Club is fascinating because this is where you get their first subgroup. The Elite. The Elite was originally made up of Omega and the Young Bucks. In a 2016 interview with Sports Illustrated, Kenny Omega noted a few things, but most importantly, Styles, Gallows, and Anderson leaving had watered down Bullet Club's ranks, according to Omega. He felt that when people were talking about the quote-unquote cool stuff that Bullet Club was doing, fans were referring to him and the Bucks, but not the other members of the Bullet Club, which is a very heavy comment to make, Ooh, even in yeah. kayfabe. That is a, that's a crazy comment to make, even in kayfabe. And you'll see how these comments are going to keep coming back as we move through the next uh, couple of years of Bullet Club. Gallows and Anderson had their last match with New Japan at night two of Honor Rising, an event co-produced by Ring of Honor and New Japan at Korokin. 
They were not attacked on their way out, though. They had a very emotional send-off with Fale and Tama in the ring. It was very respectful. They bowed to the Japanese fans. AJ Styles and the Good Brothers also had a very emotional goodbye in a Ring of Honor ring as well. AJ Styles was not attacked on his way out there, and neither were the Good Brothers. Uh, It seems like because Carl and Luke had a, a different sort of, I guess, status in the Bullet Club, they just were able to kind of rise above that, I suppose. On March 12th, Tamatanga revealed that the newest member of Bullet Club was his brother, Tavita Fafita, who was later given the ring name Tangaloa. The two formed the tag team Gorillas of Destiny, or G.O.D. By May, Bullet Club would add Adam Cole and Adam Page of Ring of Honor to their numbers as well. Adam Cole and the Bucks formed a new sub-faction too, Superclick. 2016 would be another pretty dominant year for Bullet Club with Omega winning the Intercontinental title, G.O.D. winning the IWGP heavyweight tag belts, the Bucks winning the IWGP junior tag titles again, and Omega winning the G1 Climax, becoming the first Gaijin in the company's history to win and only the third wrestler to enter and win on his first attempt. I also want to just quickly mention as an aside that while I had trouble finding a release date for the original Bullet Club t-shirt, though I think the first time I remember seeing on Pro Wrestling Tees was 2015, that shirt, for better or for worse, is an iconic bit of wrestling merchandise. It's impossible even today to not see this shirt at all of its variations in crowds at shows. By 2016, that shirt was the top-selling shirt on PWT store, and by 2017, the shirts were in Hot Topic, which was pretty crazy because prior to that only wwe wrestling merch was sold in hot topic do you own a bullet club shirt alicia i do i own a kenta club shirt okay is that what it's is that what it says on the shirt i don't wear it go to sleep club go to sleep club you don't wear it (laughs) i don't wear it anyway another major new member came at the end of 2016 in the form of cody rhodes who does go on to be known as cody in new japan but he is formerly of wwe on December 10th, 2016, Cody made an appearance via a video during New Japan's World Tag League Finals to announce he was the latest member of Bullet Club. He officially debuted during Wrestle Kingdom 11 against Juice Robinson in a winning effort. At Wrestle Kingdom 11 on January 4th, 2017, Kenny Omega unsuccessfully challenged Okada for the IWGP heavyweight title, and both sets of Bullet Club tag teams lost their belts. Omega took a hiatus to reassess his future and came back in February to a new storyline with tension between him and Adam Cole. The Bucks naturally caught in the middle, and this is where the storylines are just going to get out of control. So on February 11th, Frankie Kazarian turned on his partner, Christopher Daniels, to join Bullet Club. But by March 10th at Ring of Honor's 50th anniversary show, Kazarian had turned on Adam Cole because this was all a scheme to get Daniels to be Ring of Honor world champion. And I I love a little double turn. Adam was frustrated with the Bucks. So he tried to fire them from Bullet Club the night after. But the Bucks pointed out that only Omega, as the leader of Bullet Club, would have the pull to fire them. It's important to note that on May 1st, Adam Cole's contract with Ring of Honor expired and he became a free agent. So there was a ton of speculation about where he would go from there. But on May 12th, at the New York City stop of Ring of Honor and New Japan's War of the Worlds tour, the Bucks and Adam are embracing in the ring post-match. It seems very emotional. And then the lights go out in the venue. A video starts playing and Kenny Omega appears on screen and he has this big speech very 
anime villain. You can look the whole thing up on YouTube, but essentially he fires Adam Cole from Bullet Club. And this is their way of introducing Marty Squirrel as the newest member of the faction who was Ring of Honor World Television Champion at the time. We will not talk about Marty Squirrel from here on out, but we encourage you to Google Marty Squirrel speaking out for more information. The lights eventually come back on, the Bucks wind up super kicking Adam, and that's essentially all that is important for us to discuss in regards to Adam Cole and his time in Bullet Club. Adam is another one whose dream was to work for WWE, so he did go on to sign with them. So many storylines just scattered across. Like, I didn't even know the Kazarian thing, um, simply because I didn't follow. And I mean, that that was actually pretty compelling. But uh, yeah, that's wild how it doesn't improve from here either i mean and and we're going to talk about this a a couple times throughout history of this faction the storylines from this faction play out between ring of honor and new japan pretty much from here on out and they add other promotions as well Mm -hmm. so you can't just watch new japan and just be watching whatever's going on in bullet club at the time you kind of have to be watching multiple promotions to get a sense of everything going on with bullet club at the time in addition to everything that they're doing on social media so omega's focus in 2017 was to get another shot at the iwgp heavy he would get another chance when okada would select him for a rematch at dominion on june 11th and this match goes to a draw And then some real tension between Omega and Cody begins because Cody inserts himself into this match and wants to throw in the towel for Omega because he thinks that Kenny is too injured. But Omega doesn't want that. And this becomes a storyline between the two of them. On June 23rd, Cody defeats Christopher Daniels to win the ROH World Championship. And this is only significant in order to, again, demonstrate to you all how much of Bullet Club storylines are being played out in places like Ring of Honor by this point. I think that's really obvious by now, but if it's not, these storylines are happening in Ring of Honor. And we only see this continue as we get through more of the faction's history. They only start adding more promotions to the list of places that Bullet Club is actively playing out these storylines in. And on July 1st, Cody had a match with Okada for the IWGP Heavy at the first night of the G1 special in the US. Cody lost the match, but you see a continuation of the drama from Dominion there when Omega T's throwing in the towel for Cody. And they got into a confrontation after the match over this. So a real power struggle had started to develop between the two of them at that time. On the second night of this event, Omega won a tournament to become the inaugural IWGP US heavyweight champion. We touch on the history of this belt extensively in episode four of Kickout, Kenta and the IWGP US heavyweight championship. Check that out. If you want more information on that title. Now, during the G1 Climax in 2017, Omega went on to win his block by defeating Okada in the third match that year for the two of them. And he advanced to the finals against Tetsuya Naito. Prior to that, he had a tournament match with Tama Tonga, which Omega also won. But Tama openly questioned Omega's leadership. Tama even got on the mic and said that Omega needed to represent Bullet Club not the elite. So you can see more cracks really starting to form with Tama representing OG or original Bullet Club and Kenny representing the elite, which OG Bullet Club do not feel has anything to do with them. And frankly, that was by Kenny's design with his comments right out of the gate. Omega goes on to lose the G1 that year to Naito. And this is a fantastic match and LIJ roll call. If you haven't seen it, truly, truly one of my favorite matches. I think that's my favorite roll call too. Oh yeah, has to be, has to be. Yeah, for sure. The next new member of Bullet Club would be another brother of Tamatanga, 
Leotanga, as he was originally known, but he works under the name Hikuleo now. He had joined New Japan as a young lion, but his introduction to Bullet Club was made in September. To close out 2017, G.O.D. won their World Tag League block, but lost in the finals to L.I.J., Evil and Sonata. Cody lost the Ring of Honor World title to Dalton Castle at Final Battle on December 15th, and on December 17th, G.O.D. and Fale defeated the L.I.J. team of Bushi, Evil, and Sonata to become Never Open Six-Man Tag Champions. Wrestle Kingdom 12 on January 4th, 2018, into New Year's Dash the next day, leads to six members of the Bullet Club holding New Japan titles after the dust settles. But the most important storyline going into the new year is when Cody attempted to hit Kota Ibushi with a chair following a big tag at New Year's Dash, but Omega stopped him, which only increased the tension between the two. We can't go into the many years of story between Omega and Ibushi in this episode, but there's so much you can look up online about their friendship, rivalry, and tag team. At night two of The New Beginning and Sapporo on January 28th, Omega lost the IWGP US title to Jay White, but Cody attacked Omega after the match, hitting him with his finisher. Now, all of this tension between the different members of Bullet Club and this open hostility between Omega and Cody led to Bullet Club Civil War. This civil war plays out in shows split between Ring of Honor and New Japan, which have been happening for a while at that point anyway. Like I mentioned before, Tonga Loa, Fale, and Tamatanga are Bullet Club OG. They have removed themselves from the elite drama. The Civil War storyline would become the launching pad for the popular YouTube series, Being the Elite, which featured people like the Bucks, Omega, Cody, and other Bullet Club members providing supplementary material to all of these Bullet Club storylines playing out between the different promotions that weren't just taking place in wrestling rings anymore. They are filming this material backstage in cars and airports, hotels, etc. At Supercard of Honor 12 on April 7th, Omega and Cody had a singles match for the leadership of Bullet Club. The Bucks tried to help Omega, but it backfired and Cody was able to capitalize and win. You can watch the episode of BTE called Bullet Club is Fine <laughs> to see more about how this came about, but Kenny and Ibushi's tag team Golden Lovers was reformed. And at this point, Ibushi began to join Bullet Club for tags. On May 4th, during the second night of Wrestling Dontaku, Tama Tonga introduced the newest member of the Bullet Club, Taiji Ishimori, who had most notably wrestled for pro wrestling Noah. Taiji entered Best of the Super Juniors and made it to the finals, but Hiromu Takahashi defeated him. At Dominion on June 9th, a few important things happened. The Bucks won the heavyweight tag titles for the first time. Kenny Omega also faced Okada in a no-time limit Best two out of three falls match for the IWGP Heavy, continuing their rivalry. Omega finally defeated Okada, becoming the IWGP Heavy Champion for the first time and ending Okada's historic 720-day reign. In his post-match comments, Omega announced that he, Ibushi, and the Bucks had formed another new sub-faction within Bullet Club called the Golden Elite. He also asserted that he was still leader of Bullet Club and that Ibushi was only a member of the Elite. Omega defeated Cody at the G1 special, and while Tama Tangaloa and King Haku came out after Kenny addressed the crowd and appeared to be congratulating him, they attacked him and the Bucks instead. The Tongans revealed new Bullet Club firing squad t-shirts because what this faction has always needed is more t-shirts, <laughs> and Paige Ujiro and two nonces came to the defense of the Golden Elite, but it doesn't work. The Tongans beat them up too. Cody came out, and he was given the opportunity to hit Omega with a steel chair but he doesn't take it and is attacked by the Tongans as well. And this results in Omega and Cody suddenly mending fences and embracing each other. The Tongans <laughs> leave after stating that they are true Bullet Club. This would have been better if they wore matching sunglasses. 
matching sunglasses can mend all fences. Yeah. Like if they had just come out with matching sunglasses, I would have forgiven this whole storyline. <laughs> the next newest members of Bullet Club will become Jay White and Ghetto, who had defected from chaos after betraying both Kazuchika Okada and Hiroshi Tanahashi on October 8th at King of Pro Wrestling. In 2017, Jay had come back from excursion as Switchblade Jay White and had this new, much more like quasi heelish gimmick. Like couldn't figure him out for a minute, but he becomes a heel. He initially teased joining Bullet Club when Kenny offers, and then he attacks Kenny and just reaffirms that his allegiance to chaos and joining chaos. But this time he was truly joining Bullet Club. Robbie Eagles, a junior wrestler out of Australia, was also introduced as a member of Bullet Club and became Taiji's tag partner for a time. Jado tends to be a package deal with Ghetto, so he became a Bullet Club member too. So what's going on in the background of all of this is that Cody, Omega, and the Bucks are working on a little independent show called all in together, which they put on in Chicago with talent from all over. It's got Ring of Honor guys on it, people from the American Indies, people like the Lucha Brothers and Rey Mysterio were on this card. As everyone listening probably already knows, despite the odds stacked against them, this event was an overwhelming success and laid the foundation for what the four would go on to form together along with the Khan family, the billionaire owners of the Jacksonville Jaguars football team, All Elite Wrestling or AEW. By October, it had been announced that the Bucks, Omega, Cody, and Hangman Page were no longer a part of Bullet Club and would all be known as the Elite together. At Wrestle Kingdom 13 on January 4th, 2019, Omega lost the IWGP heavy title to Hiroshi Tanahashi and departed New Japan Pro Wrestling for AEW once his contract ran up at the very end of January. The Bucks, Adam Page, and Cody made their last appearances for ROH in December and all departed from New Japan post-Wrestle Kingdom for AEW as well. They were also not jumped out of Bullet Club. There was, I think, just some very strange circumstances and tension because of the forming of AEW going on in the background of them still needing to fulfill their contracts with New Japan. Now we've arrived at the Jay White era of the Bullet Club in a tweet on December 21st, because again, we, we do a lot of this stuff with Bullet Club via social media. In a tweet on December 21st, 2018, Tama Tonga announced that Jay White was the leader of Bullet Club. Jay started out 2019 by defeating Okada in a singles match at Wrestle Kingdom 13. And at the same event, Taiji Ishimori won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title by defeating Kushida. At the new beginning in Osaka on February 11th, Jay White became a first-time IWGP heavyweight champion when he defeated Hiroshi Tanahashi. Later on in February, Honor Rising, G.O.D. would become five-time IWGP heavyweight tag champions. El Fantasmo, a junior wrestler, joined Bullet Club in March. On April 6th at G1 Supercard at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan, G.O.D. also picked up the ROH World Tag Team titles, but Jay and Taiji lost their singles titles to Okada and Dragon Lee, respectively. Ishimori and Fantasmo began tagging and won the junior heavyweight tag team titles from Rapongi 3K in June. On June 30th, Robbie Eagles refused to hit Osprey, who was in chaos at the time with a chair at the request of Jado, Jay White, and Fale. Eagles attacked Jay and then helped Akata and Tanahashi fight off Bullet Club, so he joins Chaos as a result and is no longer affiliated with Bullet Club. We finally arrived at my favorite part of Bullet Club history. On August 12th, during the G1 Climax Final, Kenta turned on Chaos members Tomohiro Ishii and Yoshihashi in a tag match against Fale and G.O.D. and joined Bullet Club. We talked about Kenta's start in New Japan extensively in episode four of Kickout, so I won't go into too many details here, and I encourage you to listen to that one if you haven't already. 
Kenta went on to win the Never title from Ishii on August 31st at Royal Quest, and Jay White won the Intercontinental title, coming off losing to Ibushi in the finals of the G1 from Naito on September 22nd at Destruction in Kobe. At Wrestle Kingdom 14 on January 4th and 5th, White, G.O.D., Fantasmo and Taiji, and Kenta would all lose their respective titles. However, Kenta did interrupt Naito's big moment at the end of night two of Wrestle Kingdom after he had become double champion by declaring his intentions to be Naito's first challenger. However, Kenta was defeated by Naito on February 9th at the new beginning in Osaka. Pretty much right after that, we enter the pandemic, which really changed things for the promotion for a while. Folks like Jay and Kenta were at home in Florida for months because they were unable to travel to Japan. But the biggest Bullet Club storyline of the year happened during the pandemic and came in the form of Evil defeating Okada in the New Japan Cup Finals on July 11th and giving Naito a two-sweet instead of the LIJ standard raised fist when Naito came to the ring to congratulate him. Evil laid Naito out and the members of the Bullet Club walked out clapping from the back to properly welcome their new member. At Dominion on July 12th, the very next night, Evil defeated Naito for the IWGP Heavyweight title and the Intercontinental title to become double champion. We'll talk more in detail about the betrayal as we discuss Los Ingobernables. Dick Togo, who was there at ringside and helped Evil defeat Naito with interference, also joined Bullet Club. By August 29th at Summer Struggle in Jingu, Naito would reclaim his titles from Evil, but Taiji would defeat Hiromu Takahashi for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. Evil effectively became the leader of Bullet Club while Jay was absent due to the travel restrictions from the pandemic, which would have made him the first Japanese leader of Bullet Club. On August 21st, Kenta defeated Dave Finley in the finals of a New Japan Strong Tournament called New Japan Cup USA, used to determine who would win the right to challenge for the IWGP US Heavyweight title, which was being held by John Moxley at the time. This would kick off Kenta's quest to claim that belt, which again, we've covered extensively in episode four of Kickout. Jay and Kenta returned to New Japan in time for the G1, and most notably, some tension was teased between Jay and Evil, as Evil didn't seem all that interested in relinquishing control of Bullet Club back to Jay. What winds up happening, as we've seen in the past, is that certain members align themselves either with Jay or with Evil, and then you always have G.O.D. and and Fale as well, perhaps in the background, uh, doing their own thing. On November 7th, the power struggle... Jay made history when he defeated Kota Ibushi, who had won that year's G1 for his right to challenge briefcase, the first person to ever do so. At Wrestle Kingdom 15 in 2021, Jay lost in his attempt to become double champion in a match against Ibushi, and he delivered this extremely dramatic backstage afterwards, where he implied after New Year's Dash he would be done with New Japan. This caused a ton of speculation about what would happen with him next, but as we know now, he's still with the company. He took about a month and then came back in February for that tour, very similar to what Omega had done a few years previously. So dramatic. This whole stable. Yeah, I I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) Yeah, another subgroup formed in 2021, House of Torture. Rapongi 3K breaking up during Super Junior Tag League led to Sho and Yo having this grudge match, and Sho ends up walking away the victor from that. Afterward, Evil, Dick Togo, and Yujiro Takahashi came out to the ring to present him with a Bullet Club shirt. And then from there, the four of them have been using House of Torture to refer to themselves under Bullet Club. Bullet Club also expanded into Impact in 2021 as well, as Jay White has spent quite a bit of time there performing. Chris Bay was asked to join by Jay, and other members of Bullet Club via New Japan have made appearances there too, so Bullet Club's presence is certainly felt there. 
At Impact's No Surrender pay-per-view on February 19th in 2022, Jay betrayed G.O.D. and kicked them out of Bullet Club there at an Impact pay-per-view. He also welcomed Gallows and Anderson back into the club who had left WWE and been working for Impact and AEW. Jado also departed Bullet Club with G.O.D. So now we sort of arrive at Bullet Club today, which is still divided into seemingly two main camps in Japan. So now we sort of arrive at Bullet Club today, which is still seemingly divided into two main camps in Japan, but also has that impact presence through Chris Bay and some of the other U.S.-based wrestlers affiliated with New Japan. Juice Robinson is actually the newest surprise member of Bullet Club. He teased leaving New Japan, but wound up returning with Jay and the Good Brothers at Wrestling Dontaku on May 1st. Kenta has been inactive since night two of Wrestle Kingdom this year because he was hurt during his match with Tanahashi, but he's been teasing for weeks now which side he might choose when he returns as Tama and Jay have been feuding via social media for weeks. He's thrown out many possibilities in Red Herring, so we'll just have to wait and see which Bullet Club Kenta chooses to return to if he returns to Bullet Club at all. Where do you want him to return to? (laughs) If Kenta is going to go back to Bullet Club, my hope is genuinely that he joins House of Torture. He could get the cage match rating up from 0.96 to like maybe a two. Perhaps. I, I just, I think that with the way Bullet Club is right now, I'm concerned that he's coming back to main Bullet Club with all these people. The Good Brothers are back. Jay's back, uh, seemingly. They just introduced Juice. So I'm worried that Kenta gets lost in the shuffle, becomes just a guy in Bullet Club in the way that he's kind of been just a guy in Bullet Club. At least in House of Torture, there's there's less of them. So, and I would just, frankly, there's just, I'd rather him working with those people in House of Torture than certain people in what I would consider main Bullet Club right now. But what would make me happiest is if they just, I don't know, revitalized TakeOver, but expanded it into a, into a faction that he could actually properly lead. Because I don't think that uh, at this stage he needs to be anyone's second Yeah, I agree. I agree. I wanted to hear your thoughts on it, but uh, yeah, absolutely that it's, this is fascinating. This, this stable, I knew the most of it, um, the basics of it, but to get this in-depth look really made me feel, and hopefully the listeners had a, had a chart at home as well, where they're just plotting everything out to see where everything connects um, going over to Ring of Honor, going over here, going over there on YouTube, on social media. I can't help but wonder how the Japanese fans react to a lot of this because it's not accessible to them. That's an actually an incredible point because I think that this conversation comes up all the time and um, I don't want to offend anyone that's listening that is a Bullet Club fan. I, I, I genuinely know that's the point of this conversation, but Bullet Club to me, like there are, are points where Bullet Club I think has been popular enough in Japan. I think especially when Devitt was in, was in charge and then going into the AJ Styles era, for me especially, like I didn't see Devitt as leader. I saw AJ Styles as the main main event. There were a lot of people wearing AJ Styles merch at New Japan shows during that time period. Cause I can very clearly remember Japanese fans with the gloves and um, like, like AJ Styles was just incredibly over. So I think that that Bullet Club has was effective when Bullet Club was sort of straightforward and still sort of simple. But you're right. I, I don't know how Japanese fans are keeping up with the way Bullet Club has expanded into all these different American promotions. A lot of these members have, you know, there's being the elite, but also a lot of these members also have their own podcasts where they talk about things in kayfabe sometimes too. And like that stuff plays out on Twitter. So 
I don't, to your point, I have no idea how a Japanese fan keeps up with Bullet Club, to which I would then make the point that Bullet Club is not really for Japanese fans. Bullet Club is for Gaijin. And to an extent, there's, I mean, there's benefit to having these storylines being able to reach into other promotions. You get this collaborative effort with other promotions so that you're not booking in a bubble. Would you say that there is benefit to it or would you just prefer it to all be on one product? I can only speak for myself in this regard, but in, I was around for much of this stuff, like pretty much from AJ Styles up, I've been around for it. I could, I could literally pinpoint the the period of time where I became completely disengaged with New Japan, couldn't watch the, the product anymore because these different storylines with the elite in particular were just like making me question why I even wanted to watch wrestling. To me, like the way that these storylines play out, they are exactly what I, as an adult fan of wrestling, don't want to watch in WWE. So why would I want to see it when I'm watching Puro? You know, it, there's such a, there is such a Western influence and quality to them that to me has nothing to do with why I love Puro. So while, yeah, like it might be kind of interesting to have been able to benefit from these stuff playing out in, in Ring of Honor, if you're a fan of that wrestling and you were going to those shows and you can see it happening live in front of the Ring of Honor and then watching New Japan World, maybe that's appealing to people. For me, this stuff became quickly not appealing. It, it repelled me from watching a lot of this stuff. It's it's one thing now to be reading about it, but I can I could remember the feeling I was getting when I was watching the wrestling happening. And I was very unhappy. It really did affect my relationship to New Japan and how much I wanted to watch New Japan. It'd be very interesting to take, to go into a time machine and experience NWO of Japan and their relationship with WCW as it was happening. You didn't have those crossovers of storylines so much, but you still had people from the NWO coming over, um, fighting matches with NWO of Japan. They were very linked. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to sort of compare that and sort of see how you would be, uh, how you'd react to that compared to how you reacted to Bullet Club. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I would have to like- I haven't, Social I haven't media really, would not be a problem. So no, not, and like, social media probably have the problem, but I, I haven't sat even with enough of that era of wrestling to have a true opinion on it. I can only speak on how some of these bullet club and elite storylines playing out made me feel as a fan when it was happening and, you know, go, go, getting into this research and talking about it now, I don't, I don't feel any better about it. And I also feel like when, especially when the elite left, I think new Japan took like several steps forward. What really helped new Japan was moving away from stuff. that stuff that was constantly playing out with the elite and that's not to say that like things have drastically improved. There's still some issues with how New Japan is, is booking their product <laughs> these days. But I think that there was like, especially in that like period right after, they really benefited from from moving away from some of this. And I don't know. It's it's interesting to reflect on now though. No, I, I like that the Kenta was sort of a soft reset in a lot of ways by betraying Shibata and the way he did was someone pointed out to me very traditional bullet club sort of taking it back from where the elite had left it and I thought that was really interesting and a really like good way to use Kenta in that way and I and I agree with that you know I think we've made like a lot of comments and digs and jokes about Kenta and whatever but Kenta in the bullet club is not a bad idea if you're going to put Kenta anywhere except in a faction that he has created by his own image bullet club is is the way to go I mean it makes sense and the way that that betrayal worked out made a ton of sense. It's just that in the follow through of all of that, 
I don't think that they've done as much with him that as they've truly could have. So there is that. He could have taken over. <laughs> That's all you can say. He could have led a coup for leadership. I mean, I will always, um, I will beat that drum endlessly, unfortunately, for all of you listening. So we've talked over the endless changes of Bullet Club. Let's talk about a stable that has changed, what, exactly one time? <laughs> exactly. I think you could probably say exactly two major changes. So yeah. 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 I think one of, uh, actually Seb, our, uh, one of our best friends pointed out that that's why people like this stable and that's, uh, that stability is important to them. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about Los Ingobernables de Japón. Absolutely. So to set the scene for the founding of Los Ingobernables de Japón in 2015, it's important to go back to June of 2013 when Naito was returning from eight months off healing from an ACL injury that required surgery. At this point in his career, Naito has had a little bit of success in the tag team No Limit with Yujiro Takahashi and as a mid-card singles wrestler, but he hasn't had the opportunity to take the next step up into the main event scene. However, upon returning from injury, Naito competed in the G1 and defeated Hiroshi Tanahashi in the finals to win the tournament. This part of Naito's story has been told time and time again, but the fans completely rejected Naito despite the fact that he was playing a total babyface. You can hear the boos of the fans when he defeats Tanahashi. New Japan had wanted to pull the trigger on him, but the fan reaction wasn't improving in subsequent events post G1. So they decided to create a fan vote to determine the main event of Wrestle Kingdom 8, which was coming up in January 2014, of course. Now, the vote was between Naito and Okada for the IWGP heavyweight title and Tanahashi and Nakamura for the Intercontinental title. The fans voted overwhelmingly in favor of Nakamura and Tanahashi for the main event, putting a secondary title over the promotion's top heavyweight title at their biggest show of the year. Okada and Naito would be the semi-main event and Naito would lose the match to Okada. Naito's struggles after Wrestle Kingdom 8 in that upper mid-card spot, the fan vote would turn into an extremely formative experience for him. I can't really stress how devastating this was for him. Naito's only goal in life was to be a star in New Japan, and this outright rejection by fans and the embarrassment of this fan vote was an awful experience. Fast forward to May of 2015, Naito finishes up a tour in America with New Japan and Ring of Honor and goes to Mexico to do another stint over at CMLL, something he's done before because of the historical partnership between New Japan and CMLL. But this month-long trip to Mexico would turn out to be a career-changing move for him. While doing shows for CMLL, Naito joined the Rudo faction, Los Ingobernables, which translates to the Ungovernables. The faction was founded by Los Sombra, who we know today as Andrade, Rouge, and La Mascara. One of the things I love about the original Los Ingobernables ethos is that while we check them as Rudos due to their Rudo or heel behavior in the ring, they did not refer to themselves as Rudos. They referred to themselves as Tecnicos Diferentes, which essentially means a different type of hero. You can really see how this ethos would go on to influence Los Ingobernables de Japón too. There are some really striking parallels between Rush in particular and Naito as well that we'll come to look at while we're talking about LIJ. Rush began his career as a technico, but he couldn't get over as one. So he completely reinvented himself as a Rudo under Los Ingobernables and became a superstar. As we continue unpacking LIJ, like I said, you're really going to see how Naito's experience mirrors this as well. And I cannot stress enough how Rush went to being 
un pretty much unknown, just could not get over as a baby face to being a massive superstar at the height of his time with CMLL. The original Los Angeles also has the greatest walkout in pro wrestling. This is indisputable fact. I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to go look it up like immediately after recording this. <laughs> they walk out to Black Skinhead by Kanye West. Okay, yeah, that's the best. <laughs> Naito returns to New Japan on June 26th, and Naito's demeanor is noticeably different. In his first few appearances, you can see the marked change in his personality. He's moving really slow. He's completely disengaged from his Hontai teammates. He's laying on the ring apron during matches. He's still wearing his Stardust Genius gear, the shorts, the knee pads, and the boots, but he's wearing a Los Angeles shirt and hat to the ring now. He's obviously emulating the more rudo or heel behavior of his friends, La Sombra and Roosh. And this demeanor change was brilliant because in playing into the way New Japan crowds had treated him and acting totally disengaged, he was mirroring their disinterest in him, but had remade himself into a much more compelling character than he ever had been instantly. Everyone was talking about Tetsuya Naito and waiting to see what he would do next. Just before King of Pro Wrestling on October 12th, Naito began teasing bringing in a pareja to his match with Hiroshi Tanahashi, that year's G1 winner, who was defending his right to challenge for the IWGB heavyweight title at the upcoming Wrestle Kingdom 10 event. His partner was revealed to be Takaki Watanabe, who had been on excursion for two years but just returned. He would be renamed Evil and given a completely different gimmick with Naito nicknaming him King of Darkness. Naito loses the match against Tanahashi, but what's interesting about revisiting early LIJ is remembering that they used to run interference like typical heels, which Evil did try to do for Naito at one point during that match. During the opening night of World Tag League, which Naito and Evil participated in, Bushi came back from injury and was introduced as a member of the new faction Los Ingobernables de Apon. On March 12, 2016, Naito won the New Japan Cup with help from Evil and Bushi, which gave him the right to pick a title to challenge for. He chose the IWGP heavyweight title held at the time by Kazushka Okada. This is not the episode for me to get into these two, but they have a very special relationship, and I do hope to talk about them soon because their rivalry and story is very important to me. The match was set for Invasion Attack on April 10th. Sonata, formerly of AJPW and W1, made his surprise New Japan debut as a new member of LIJ and assisted Naito in defeating Okada for the IWGB Heavyweight Championship, his first win. Unfortunately, Naito would lose the title back to Okada in his second defense at Dominion on June 19th, a very short 70-day reign, which was very disappointing at the time. At Destruction in Tokyo on September 17th, Bushi won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title from Kushida, and Naito defeated Michael Elgin for the Intercontinental title at Destruction in Kobe on September 25th. Fuck Michael Elgin. Bushi quickly dropped the title back to Kushida, and Evil also won the Never title from Shibata, only to drop it right back to him not long after. On December 10th, during the World Tag League Finals, Hiromu Takahashi made his return to New Japan after being on excursion for three years, mostly working for CMLL as Kamiotachi. He interfered in a match for Naito and Roosh. Afterward, Naito offered him an LIJ baseball cap, which got a great reaction from the crowd. From then on, Hiromu would be a member of LIJ. At Wrestle Kingdom 11, on January 4th, 2017, Hiromu won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title for the first time against Kushida. Sonata, Evil, and Bushi won the Never Openweight Six-Man Tag Championships, and Naito successfully defended the Intercontinental title against Hiroshi Tanahashi. LIJ would spend the earlier part of 2017 feuding with Taguchi Japan, but at Dominion on June 11th, Hiromo and Naito would lose their titles to Kushida and Tanahashi, respectively. 
Naito wouldn't be down for long, though, as he entered the G1 a month later and won his block, meeting Kenny Omega in the finals. Naito won the G1 for the second time in his career. And like I said before, this is an incredible match and a very satisfying LIJ roll call, which Naito had been become known for doing. This win is incredibly significant because as we noted, Naito began his journey being completely rejected by the fans and embarrassed by the fan vote incident to being cheered like a hero by the time he captured this G1 win. This is the remarkable thing about LIJ. Naito had to completely reinvent himself as this quasi-Rudo character, seemingly rejecting all of these parts of pro wrestling that he loved to actually find himself, and then the fans embraced him. This creates such an interesting identity for LIJ because while they don't define themselves as a Rudo or heel group either, modeling themselves after the original Los Ingobernables, New Japan crowds just aren't booing them, even when they are acting like outright heels. Naito used to have nuclear heat in places like Osaka as the baby-faced stardust genius. Now when they're in Osaka Joe Hall, he's got the entire building cheering for him. And what's interesting here is that there wasn't a, well, they have to be baby faces now because we have bigger heels. They already had big heel factions and they were coming in acting as heels. So they're really compelling in a lot of ways. They aren't being forced into, well, we want to play heels, but the other heels are out healing us. They're deliberately playing this sort of anti-hero role. It's very interesting. It's very different from New Japan. It is. It becomes, um, it's like chaos get forced into, mm-hmm. into becoming babyface because there's, there's Suzuki-gun and there's Bullet Club and there's no need anymore for chaos to, to be heels when they've got those two groups. But then you have Los Ingobernables de Japón who start out and like I said there was a lot of interference in those earlier matches and that's how Naito won the belt the first time but over time they they don't need to be heels anymore because the crowd does not recognize anything they're doing as being heels the crowd's going to cheer for them anyway Naito is the hero it doesn't matter what he's doing so that's what they have to react to they're not reacting to the other groups in New Japan they're reacting to the way the crowd is treating them and that's really, really special. And that's really important. Like, like you said, even if you go further back than just chaos being forced into this baby face because they really needed, you know, that baby face force against Suzuki Goon and Bullet Club, you go back to even Chono having to effectively turn baby face with Team 2000 as they took on Makai Club and Inoki's army. So to have this just genuine no, we just don't want to boo him um, character is is really, really uh, unique for New Japan, I feel. And that's, it's something special. Absolutely. And in 2017, Sonata and Evil won World Tag League and Hiromu and Bushi also began tagging together. At Wrestle Kingdom 12 on January 4th, 2018, Sonata and Evil would defeat KES to claim the IWGV heavyweight tag titles for the first time. Naito unfortunately loses to Okada in his attempt to win the IWGB heavyweight title from him, continuing their story over that belt for a while longer. On April 29th at Wrestling Hinokuni, Naito defeated Minoru Suzuki to become Intercontinental Champion again, which he dropped to Chris Jericho at that year's Dominion. Now, Hiromu Takahashi broke his neck during a match with Dragon Lee at the G1 Special on July 7th. He successfully defended his IWGP Junior Heavyweight title that night, but the injury forced him to vacate. He would take quite a bit of time off to heal. On October 8th at King of Pro Wrestling, Naito introduced LIJ's sixth member, Shingo Takagi, formerly of Dragon Gate. He initially competed in the Junior Heavyweight division. 
At Wrestle Kingdom 13 on January 4, 2019, LIJ swept the matches they were in and all left with belts. Naito won the Intercontinental title back from Jericho, and that can Naito and the Intercontinental belt could actually be its own episode. Tanada and Evil won the IWGP heavyweight belts, and Bushi and Shingo won the junior heavyweight belts. They would lose their belts, though, over the next two months at various events. <laughs> Takagi made it to the finals of the Best of the Super, Super Juniors tournament, but lost to Will Ospreay which was his only singles lost in the junior division and would be his last match as a junior. For more information on Will Ospreay, I'm going to point you in the direction of a great article for Fanbyte by Emily Pratt called Welcome with Open Arms, the Importance of NJPW Ignoring Allegations Against International Talent. Naito would regain the Intercontinental title from Ibushi at Dominion, and Sakagi would announce his participation in the G1 Climax. Jay White, who lost in the finals to Ibushi during the tournament, did defeat Naito and used that win to challenge him for the Intercontinental title. He defeated Naito at Destruction in Kobe on September 22nd. At Power Struggle on November 3rd, Hiromu did make his return and challenge for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title in a match set up for Wrestle Kingdom 14. Naito also declared his intention to become the first double champion at that event, meaning he would hold the IWGP Heavyweight Championship and the Intercontinental Championship simultaneously. This led to a program between him, Ibushi, Jay White, and Okada for Wrestle Kingdom 14. On night one of Wrestle Kingdom, Naito fought Jay White and reclaimed the Intercontinental title while Ibushi fell to IWGP heavyweight champion Okada. This left Okada and Naito as champions to face each other and determine the double champion. Naito triumphed and became New Japan's first double champion in the history of their company. This win was far more significant than his first IWGP heavyweight title win as Naito won on his own merits without anyone from LIJ needing to interfere for him. Also at Wrestle Kingdom 14, Bushi, Evil, and Shingo won a gauntlet match to become never six-man tag champions, so a successful Wrestle Kingdom for LIJ overall. But because, like we've mentioned before, Naito is slightly cursed, Penta interrupted his big moment by attacking him post-match and then prevented him from doing the LIJ roll call, which infuriated everyone. Kenta became Naito's first defense, and he defeated Kenta on February 9th at the New Beginning in Osaka. Hiromu also won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title on night one of Wrestle Kingdom, and his first defense was also at the New Beginning in Osaka. He defeated Dragon Lee, now going as Ryu Lee. Now, unfortunately, the pandemic begins like right after this. <laughs> and New Japan shuts down operations for a while. Hiromu and Naito had actually agreed to face each other at I believe the anniversary show was when they were trying to do that match. But obviously this didn't come to pass and it's not been brought up since they started running shows again. We touched on this in our discussion of Bullet Club since their histories intersect here, but New Japan comes back with the New Japan Cup starting on June 16th. Evil's demeanor was very noticeably different right from the jump in that tournament. He's being a lot more vicious and cruel, even using a chair against Sonata and injuring Yoshihashi outside of the ring. He goes on to defeat Okada in the finals after Bullet Club members of all people interfered. And when Naito comes out to the ring, he lays his titles down on the canvas and raises his fist into the air to congratulate Evil. Evil meets his fist with a two-sweet and lays him out. Evil defecting from LIJ was significant as he had been the first member to join and was now the first and to date only member to leave. The very next night at Dominion, Evil and Naito were set for a match over the IWGP heavy and intercontinental titles. In a shock win after heavy interference from Dick Togo, Evil defeated Naito to become the new double champion. When asked in a press conference why he left, Evil responded that the other members of LIJ were quote-unquote rotten. 
and implied that Bullet Club were the best faction and his win was only possible through them. There was a sense that Evil was tired of being the fourth best heavyweight in LIJ. In an interview with Naito conducted in August 2020, he made a lot of interesting comments about coming to the ring after Evil's Cup win and bracing himself for the hit. He knew something was going to happen, but he wanted Evil to reveal his intentions for everyone to see. He was reluctant to criticize Evil for cheating to win too much, reflecting on his own first run with the IWGP Heavy, but seemed somewhat disappointed Evil hadn't shown the potential he had seen in him when choosing him as his first pareja by going down this path with Bullet Club. This storyline would dominate the main event with Hiromo Takahashi overwrought by Evil's betrayal as the two had been best friends since their dojo days, challenging him for the belts at Sengoku Lord on July 25th. Hiromo was defeated by Evil with help from Dick Togo. Evil was also still a never six-man champion with Sonata and Shingo, but those belts were vacated as Evil had no interest in continuing to work with them. All of this led to summer struggle in Jingu on August 29th, where Hiromu lost his IWGP Junior Heavyweight title to Taiji Ishimori, and Shingo dropped the never belt he had picked up to Minoru Suzuki. But Naito, despite interference from Dick Togo, was able to win the belts back to become double champion again as the fireworks exploded over Jingu Stadium. What a great moment. <laughs> it was a wonderful moment. It was fun, too, because that match is um, people were so critical of LIJ's reluctance to uh, interfere in matches at that point, which is really funny because again, if we remember from the earlier years of LIJ, they yeah. interfered all the time. Now we've flipped to a point where they never come out <laughs> to help each other. Well, Bushi will come out to help Naito, but it's funny because during the Jingu match, you get Bushi and Sonata came out in like their expensive, like oh, they're so thousand dollar fancy <laughs> to um to help Naito like drive off. Dick Togo and stuff like that. So yeah, just just a, I I loved that match personally. I, I really enjoyed the the build to that. It was such a great moment for Naito to win the belts back in a in a baseball stadium. During Wrestle Kingdom 15, Hiromu defeated Super J Cup winner Elp to earn a shot at Taiji for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Belt on night two, where he was also victorious. Unfortunately, Hiromu would have to vacate shortly after due to a pectoral muscle injury, and he would take time off to heal. Naito would lose his belts to Kota Ibushi. Shingo retained against Jeff Cobb, and Sonata got a win over Evil in a grudge match between the two. Not long after winning both belts, New Japan made the decision to unify them into the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship under Ibushi, which, mind you, Naito did not want to happen, and he was pretty vocal about that. Ibushi dropped the belt to Osprey, who defended them against Shingo, but eventually vacated. Shingo made a case for challenging the next challenger in line, Okada, and the two met at Dominion on June 7th for the vacant title. Shingo walked away the victor, making him the first into date only LIJ member to win the new IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. On July 11th at Summer Struggle in Sapporo, Sonata and Naito won the IWGP Heavyweight Tag Belts from Dangerous Techers, but they dropped the belts after 14 days back to Techers because this is Naito we're talking about. Notably, though, this was Naito's first tag reign since No Limits back in 2010. Very recently, Naito has stepped back into the main event with two challenges for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship against perennial rival Kazuchika Okada, but he has come up short both times. He has been hindered by some recurring injuries like a knee injury that certainly kept him from being a major player in 2021's G1, and he is taking some time off right now to correct a double-teaming issue with his eyes that he had surgery for a couple of years ago. Sonata won the IWGP US heavyweight belt that had to vacate it due to an orbital bone injury as well very recently. He's still currently inactive as he heals, and Shingo has recently won the King of Pro Wrestling. What I really can't stress enough, though, is how much Los Ingobernables de Japón has changed per Asu. 
Naito and LIJ have sold more merch than anyone else in New Japan, and that includes Bullet Club. It's not even close. When Naito won the Tokyo Sports MVP Award in 2016, Tospo called LIJ a phenomenon that had ushered in a new era. His win had broken a five-year streak where that award was won either by Okada or Tanahashi. Naito won it again in 2017, becoming the fifth wrestler to win it consecutively. Naito hit rock bottom after Wrestle Kingdom 8 and could have accepted a career in the upper mid card, but LIJ is really a story of what happens when you bet on yourself. That's beautifully said. And it's really interesting to examine, and I know we've talked about this as we were talking about LIJ, how different of a faction they are to New Japan. And I think you were you were dead on in saying that it was where Tospo said it was a phenomenon that ushered in a new era. One thing that um, spoke to me was when you mentioned that Shingo was the first to win that world title. A lot of these factions, you said it great in Bullet Club, where this um, the eras of Bullet Club are circled around whoever the leader is or whoever the big breadwinner is in the case of AJ Styles. Um, it's one guy with everybody else sort of around them. Would you say that Shingo and LIJ sort of brings a breath of fresh air or even a stop to that trend. The interesting thing about LIJ and what makes them so different from a faction like Bullet Club is that LIJ, the members are not inherently competing with each other. Whereas in Bullet Club, they'll eat each other. That's the difference. And with LIJ, Naito is not trying to, even as like the the, the leader, as the, as the biggest personality in LIJ that LIJ is based around, He's not trying to be better than any of them or keep any of them from being successful and to take their shine away. He wants them to be successful. That's the point. And that really comes across when he talks about them. They are all chosen to be an LIJ by him for a reason, for their individual strengths. And it really comes across too in the interview I referenced where he's talking about evil. He's not mad evil left. That's not, that's not his thing coming into that feud and especially heading into Jingu. Um, He's not mad evil left. He's mad that in the path that evil chose in leaving LIJ, he's no longer demonstrating the strengths that that rather Naito saw in evil that made Naito choose him to be an LIJ. So that is the really the core of what makes up LIJ. They all have these very individual strengths and, and these different things that make them a part of the faction. And Shingo in being the, you know, when he won the, the world heavyweight title, you know, Naito's not going to vague him or start to like create tension there. Shingo was chosen to be an LIJ for a reason. So of course Shingo would become world champion. That's, that's the point, right? That I hope that makes sense. But you know, in that way, LIJ are refreshing because when it comes to their own individual achievements, I don't ever have to worry or have the sense of worry that it's going to cause that kind of tension between them. Evil of course was the outlier and it was a compelling story but with the others you know that's that's not the that hasn't been the point of lij but that was also what made naito's comments around evil leaving that much more compelling too yeah i agree and i like i said i think there's a lot to say about um lij kind of ushering in a new era in that way uh because now you're starting to see that a little bit more in some of the other factions too and Suzuki Goon is going to be a great example and we'll talk about that especially with Thistle coming up in just a moment here where you're starting to see maybe a changing of the guard or maybe not but you're starting to see you know Zack Sabre Jr is kind of the ace of the unit Suzuki's 
out working as a freelancer, especially, you know, touring the American Indies. So um, I think there's a lot to be said for LIJ's influence on New Japan and how it books its factions now. The factions feel very brand-like in a lot of ways. And you'll notice um, that from chaos on, these factions are old. Like I said, Heisei Ishingun was the longest lived at like seven-ish years. And now I think we're getting on what the seventh anniversary in October for LIJ. So there's really something to be said there for how these, uh, how the faction booking has changed so much. Yeah. And what I will say too, about what's really compelling, particularly about Suzuki Goon and LIJ is that these are two factions where they, they, the concept of them doesn't originate in New Japan. And we talk about Suzuki Goon with Thistle, obviously, but that's Minoru Suzuki's faction. New Japan doesn't own Suzuki Goon, right? So that's not something that necessarily New Japan can take a lot of claim for, but it's in a very successful and lucrative faction for them. And then with Los Ingobernables de Apon, the concept comes from Los Ingobernables in CMLL. Naito was inspired clearly by that group and how La Sombra and Roosh were able to use it to launch their careers. So it's just interesting that in, in these brands, so to speak, that some of the more compelling and lucrative factions that have come out of contemporary New Japan are ideas that don't really stem from New Japan itself. You think about the NWO, NWO of Japan. It's right. I, yeah. Yeah, very much. Yeah. I, I, there is definitely something to be said there. It's uh, interesting that Chono sort of brought over this uh, American heelized faction and then it, you know, spiraled out of control into what we see Bullet Club today. And then you have Naito bringing over a much more nuanced, not even a Rudo faction. And it's effectively revitalized the, uh, the company and how it, how it views its factions. There is improvement even in the cycles, which I think is really interesting. Or would you agree? You're, you're thinking about the latest uh, Bullet Club developments, I can tell. Yeah, I mean, that's where I... Uh... <laughs> you're, you're afraid that New Japan is going to get stuck in that Bullet Club cycle and lean on that heel, American heel style that it's come to rely on. I am. I think that the latest Bullet Club developments with them bringing Juice back in suddenly as a new member. I mean, they just, they just keep bringing, it's so bloated. They just keep bringing in members. And I just think that nothing can go to a faction that is as bloated as Bullet Club has become. And we're seeing the return of like, you know, people who have the, the good brothers are back. And this is not to, to, to drag Carl and, and Luke necessarily, but I'm just concerned that we're going to see a return to those, that period of, of New Japan in particular, where the Bullet Club was so dominant across all of the belts that it just creates this stranglehold on the storylines and on the wrestling. And it doesn't turn out very good wrestling. And that's what I think happens when you become, when the company becomes very Bullet Club reliant. So yeah, that is my, that is my concern. And it's a shame too, because we, 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 we like you said in the beginning of this episode, or like we said at the beginning of this episode, there are some high highs and low lows to new Japan factions. And, you know, when we talk about the success of chaos to some degree, but also the overwhelming success of, of Los Ingobernables de Japan, and then also to Suzuki Goon as well, you know, that's the high highs, but then you have some of the real low lows 
in terms of, um, and I won't necessarily even say, you know, if you're a fan of Bullet Club, again, this is not to make you feel bad for being a fan of Bullet Club, but the way they are used in the booking sometimes can be tremendously difficult. So that's the concern that they're just going to revert back to that. Yeah, it's a really valid concern. And uh, you you raise a good point about the quality of the wrestling, because when LIJ had the stranglehold of the belts, it was certainly not the same effect. So that is, that is a really good point. Who knows? Maybe uh, Kenta will come back and take over and the cheating will go away. Like Kenta doesn't cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Like Kenta's not the worst of them all. He's Uh, at least charming when he cheats. I don't know. There we go. There we go. Well, I suppose there's only one way to find out (laughs) and uh, we'll, we'll tune in and I'm sure maybe we'll run this back sometime and you'll hear from us again, but for now, let's turn it over to Thistle and talk about some lighter parts of contemporary New Japan with El Desperado and Suzuki-kun. So Thistle, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? I'm an artist and I am a tall ship sailor who's obsessed with Japanese pro wrestling, which is a strange overlap of interests, but at least one other tall ship sailor who is obsessed with Japanese pro wrestling also exists. I know because I've met him and I gave him a two sweet. Excellent. And where can people follow you on social media and find your art? Um, I have an art Twitter. It's thistle underscore art. And I made a wrestling tumbler called Thistle Dropkick, which I've heard people are going back to Tumblr these days. <laughs> so I also went back to Tumblr, but I'm not too active on either of those, but that's where you can find me. All right, awesome. So how did you start watching wrestling? And how did you discover? Pro Resu and New Japan Pro Wrestling. So I've been watching Pro Wrestling since I was a kid, uh, but I was never like a huge, huge wrestling fan as a kid. I liked it. Um, and then I, I got really into Impact at a certain point back when it was called TNA and they still had the six-sided ring and Motor City Machine Guns were there and the Young Bucks were Generation Me and all that stuff. Um, but then I kind of fell off of that after eventually, um, and sort of became a casual fan again for a while, but WWE became more and more intolerable to me. So I stopped watching (laughs) entirely. And then my boyfriend suggested that I should watch, uh, Wrestle Kingdom, uh, which was Wrestle Kingdom 11 because he had a feeling that I would like the Okada versus Kenny Omega match. Uh, He was right, and I did. And then uh, I became super obsessed with New Japan. Uh, And that was at the beginning of uh, 2017. And then I just kept being obsessed with New Japan uh, and didn't stop. (laughs) Um, And with wrestlers, I've always liked uh, junior heavyweights. And I like mask wrestlers. Those are like the two types of wrestlers that I tend to like. Awesome. And would you say that New Japan is your favorite promotion of all the wrestling that you're watching? And if so, is there something in particular about their wrestling that draws you to them more so than the others? 
Yeah, New Japan is definitely my favorite. Um, I really like the aesthetic of New Japan. I really like the camera work of New Japan. Um, I have really picky tastes with camera work, and I like camera that uh, lingers on a shot. I don't like that really quick cutting camera work. And also, I really like the way that New Japan kind of feels like you're watching a sports anime, except it's real people. Uh, it just really appeals to me. Yeah, I think we uh, definitely can relate in a lot of those ways, especially with the camera work. In my mind, there really isn't a promotion with camera work quite like New Japan. Uh, it's really yeah, just incredible. It, it's very distinctive. Uh, they, they linger more on the shots and the camera angles are really thoughtful. I just really like it. They've spoiled me for most other uh, pr uh, wrestling promotions. Yeah, we were watching an, uh, an American wrestling promotion recently, uh, the two of us, and we're very, uh, it was very jarring how much they cut away, uh, especially compared to Pearl in general, but uh, mm -hmm. specifically talking about New Japan has always been a standout as far as like great camera, camera work. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have trouble watching most American uh, promotions because of the, just because the quick cut camera work. I mean, some people like it, but it's just not to my taste. Well, let's talk about a wrestler that we do know is quite to your taste. Uh, let's talk a little bit about El Desperado. So what made you a fan of his? So I first started watching New Japan, uh, like I said, at the beginning of 2017. Um, and that was right before Suzuki-gun came back from Noah to New Japan. So I didn't really know who they were. Um, and I just immediately thought El Desperado was cool. He's got this awesome mask. He has a cool look. And the moment that I remember making a big impression on me was when uh, they all surprise, surprisingly came in to interfere uh, with that match with Zach versus Shibata, which is what, of course, when Zach joined the group. Uh, it's just really, they, they're so cool. And they're all very different. Like visually, they all, uh, there's a lot of variety between the group. The, the other thing that stood out to me right away about Desperado is that he's very expressive, uh, which is a real feat for someone whose face is entirely covered. You really can only see his eyes uh, most of the time, but he just emotes. He emotes with his entire body. It's, it's just, uh, it really caught my eye right away. Even when he's not in the ring, he emotes, even if he's like a second or if he's just trying to, you know, wait for a tag, he's always emoting and responding to the match. It, it's uh, to me, it's very compelling. It was very compelling right away. I agree. That's something that actually stood out to me. I'm not one who usually uh, gets attached to masked wrestlers, but with El Desperado, there's always that, wow, he's so emotive. And then it's sort of almost become that gold standard for masked wrestlers to me. When I see them be emotive, I associate them with El Desperado and that sort of um, increases my affection for them, uh, that emotive sort of quality. Mm -hmm. the, the thing that's so wild to me about it is not only does he wear a mask that covers his whole face uh, the majority of the time, but like his skin that's showing is covered with paint and his eyes are covered with contacts. So his entire face is covered uh, the majority of the time, but he really, he's so expressive. I don't know how he does it, but I, I think it's amazing. 
Absolutely. So walk us through a little bit of El Desperado's backstory. Okay. So to talk about El Desperado's backstory, you have to talk about Mikami Kyosuke's backstory. New Japan kind of still acts like they're two different people. Uh, and a lot of the Japanese fandom does too, at least from what I've seen, even uh, on Japanese Wikipedia, Mikami Kyosuke and El Desperado have separate Wikipedia articles. El Desperado and Mikami Kyosuke's two different identities have been collapsing over time. And recently they're collapsing uh, a lot more. So Mikami Kyosuke first got into wrestling when he was a kid, his dad was a wrestling fan. And he took him to see uh, a show that had Stan Hansen in it. So Desperado became a big Stan Hansen, or excuse me, Mikami Kyosuke became a big Stan Hansen fan. And he decided he wanted to be a pro wrestler. He trained in amateur wrestling and in judo. And then in college, he joined Hiroshi Hase's uh, pro wrestling club. But then uh, he later dropped out of college. And then after he dropped out of college, he tried out for the New Japan Dojo, uh, but they wouldn't accept him because he was too short. And they had a height requirement that was very strict at that time. He was a little bit too short to meet it. So uh, he worked uh, different other jobs for about four years. And then in 2009, New Japan dropped the height requirements for that year. So he tried out and got accepted in that year. That's the same year that Hiromu was accepted, uh, who I believe is also too short for the other height requirements. So he was accepted to the dojo in 2009. Uh, he was in the same class as Hiromu and Fale. He debuted in 2010. And then in October 2010, um, he had his jaw broken in a match and he was out for some time as a young lion. But then he left to go on excursion in 2012. And he went on excursion uh, to Mexico uh, to CMLL. So now, now we can switch from Mikami Kyosuke to Namahage. So that was when he first wrestled under a mask uh, as Namahage. Uh, and he also got to know some people who he still associates with and knows now Sasaki in Mexico, he met Taichi in Mexico, and he met Doki in Mexico. Um, and he also met Dragon Lee in Mexico, but Dragon Lee is, uh, this was before Dragon Lee was Dragon Lee. Uh, he uh, hadn't um, debuted as a wrestler at that time. He eventually lost his mask there in a betting match. And then after he lost his mask, he would paint his face, um, which I just thought was pretty interesting. Even at that time, he didn't want to wrestle with his whole face showing. Uh, so he would paint half of his face and bleach half of his hair. He was over there for less than two years before he uh, mysteriously vanished, uh, according to New <laughs> And then uh, a new, totally new, un completely unrelated wrestler who just was the same build and height and everything mysteriously showed up shortly afterwards el desperado and he showed up at wrestle kingdom uh after ibushi won his match 
with uh, Prince Devitt, and he proposed he he proposed a challenge. He dramatically proposed a challenge to Ibushi with this bouquet of black roses, which Ibushi accepted, and then Desperado lost. And those two tagged for a while, uh, which is really weird to go back and watch now. Uh, they were a tag team. And they even challenged the Young Bucks for the uh, junior heavyweight tag belt, which is, again, really weird to go back and watch now. And they also tagged together with Naito for a while. <laughs> Just a very strange combination. Uh, and during this time, uh, Desperado wasn't officially like a member of Hontai or anything. He was just had no faction. Yeah. That way he sort of works with Ibushi because Ibushi at that mm-hmm. time was very much a free spirit as exactly. well. I mean, he still is. He'll never not be. It's Ibushi. But uh, especially in that time where he was in that freelance period. Yeah, he was. He, Desperado was the same way. He was listed the same way as Ibushi on their on their profiles. Just no faction at all. But eventually he broke up with Ibushi and then he turned on Alex Shelley in 2014. And that was when he joined Suzuki-gun. For some reason that match is still not on New Japan World. It's very annoying to me. But uh, that that was when he joined the group. And after he joined Suzuki-gun, he claimed that he had always been planning to join Suzuki-gun. And that ever since he first came back to New Japan, that was planned all along. And that he was just pretending to be a nice guy the whole time. Naturally. (laughs) That was his claim. I really like Face Desperado. That was my next question. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's kind of strange to go back and watch it now. Like he he's kind to the children. He always comes out with a rosary on his neck and he gives it to children in the audience and he like shakes people's hands after the match and helps them up and stuff. Uh, it's a little different than, <laughs> than he ends up being with, with Suzuki Goon. So, okay. So then after that, he didn't have that much longer in New Japan before he went to uh, Noah, before the whole, whole faction went to Noah. He just had a couple failed singles title shots and then all of Noah left, or all of Suzuki-gun left to Noah. For the dark years. As I say, we have <laughs> much to say. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't speak too much on, on that. I am not a Noah expert of any kind. Well, they join Noah. <laughs> and really the, <laughs> really the Suzuki-gun angle, it lasts for about two years. And... It becomes very quickly Suzuki Goon versus Noah to the point where I, I guess maybe it was Mar my, like it was Mara Fuji. Is, yeah, it was Mara Fuji. Mara Fuji has all of the factions that were present in Noah disband so that they can all join as one in the fight against Suzuki Goon, which is a really uh, and like I was a brand new fan at the time. I thought that was actually kind of compelling. <laughs> Um, I actually th- I thought it was great. I remember it to the day. It was uh, actually New or Christmas Eve of 2016. I think it was. I think it was actually uh, the eve of Christmas Eve, so December 23rd. But yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, it just really sticks out in my mind when Mara Fuji made that press conference. It was it's, it's, 
it rocked me. So yeah. So we had we had no more factions in Noah. All we had was Noah and sort of like they they had their own basically main army versus Suzuki Goon. And Suzuki Goon became very powerful because there were some, you know, defectors over to the Suzuki Goon side that were very important parts of that story. You had uh, Takashi (laughs) Sugira defect from Noah and go over to Suzuki Goon. You had eventually um, the returning Yoshinobu Kanemaru leave Noah and join Suzuki Goon, which becomes more important as we get through to the, to the to the end of that angle, obviously. So you have some interesting stuff there in terms of Desperado's time in Noah. I mean, this was a very ugly time for Noah. Business is bad. The company looks like it could be closing its doors bad. And there's not a lot of people coming to Noah shows anyway. And the crowd is um, hostile at times towards the members of Suzuki Goon. One of, I was telling both of you before we started recording this, that my, my most like, my strongest memory of Desperado from that time period is when he got into a fight with a member of the crowd and people were trying to figure out like, was that real or is this a work? And like, but that was, you know, an ugly thing. <laughs> like no matter what it was, whether it was a work, whether it was not a work, that was a very ugly thing that happened on a Noah show with Despy getting into this fight with a member of the crowd at this venue. But Despy did have a, um, a title run. He was a GHC junior heavyweight tag team champion with Taka Michinoku for a couple of months during his time in NOAA. So he does have that to his name. He is a GHC junior, you know, heavyweight tag champion. So there's, there's that. But like I said, it was a very turbulent time for Noah. This was not a well-received storyline by any means. And the, the fans were, were very upset. Um, and at this time too, the person that was booking Noah was Jado from New Japan. So there was a lot of issues with that and with New Japan's influence over all the things that were happening over at NOAA. And eventually they they sort of wrapped this up by sending Suzuki Goon back to New Japan. Kanemaru goes with them. We get Sugira back. <laughs> and <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness. And New Japan really breaks off its its partnership with NOAA at that point. And we no longer have uh, like Jado booking Noah. This was a really substantial influence on El Desperado as a character. If I were to remember correctly, it really left an imprint on him. I remember that he talks about, he talks about that fight with the audience a lot and um, how it sort of imprinted on him, this sense of self and um, the sense of who he is as a heel as a character. And that's, that's always been a really fascinating part of his character to me. So to say that this sort of storyline really kind of kickstarts the El Desperado that we know now um, seems like a pretty good statement. Um, how do you feel about that? The thing I guess that I think about with all that uh, situation is that everybody else who was in Suzuki Goon at that time was pretty well established. They had a character that w- that had a fan base. Desperado was a, a just back from excursion, was just recently a young lion wrestler. I mean, he was pretty brand new. I believe he was in New Japan for like five months or something before wow. before Suzuki Gun left. Like, if you think of other like the current uh, young lions that just came back recently at that time period to pull them out of the company and send them off to a hostile audience like that. I don't know. It's rough. 
And I just think it must have been very, I, I believe that it had an impact on a lot of stuff for him, the way a lot of things worked out for him in general, good and bad, but it must have been difficult. Yeah, I definitely do think that the uh, bad probably shaped a lot of the good and the good that was to come. Uh, So let's talk a little bit about his return to New Japan. So Desperado came back with everybody else in 2017, and he formed a tag team with Nobu, uh, with uh, Kanemaru, who I'll probably keep calling Nobu accidentally. Oh, (laughs) as an aside, aside, Suzuki-gun has a lot of Nicknames for each other. Um, tai Chi calls Desperado Peh. Desperado requests that the fans do not call him that. Only people that are close to him can call him that. Uh, they all call Kanemaru Uncle Nobu, except for Doki, who just calls him Uncle. He's just started doing that recently, but it's pretty cute. Um, and of course, everybody usually calls Suzuki boss. Tai Chi has stopped doing that, <laughs> but he used to. And Desperado always does. I, I, don't, I just, I like that whole, all their little nicknames are very appealing to me. But anyway, so Desperado teamed up with Nobu and Desperado says that he had a big positive influence on his wrestling. And they've had a history of holding the tag belts together, like repeatedly, a lot of really good runs with them. Desperado could not win a singles belt. Uh, he had a feud with Kushida, couldn't win it. Uh, he had a an excellent feud with Hiromu, but he couldn't uh, win the belt from him. And in fact, at this point, he had never he- held a singles title, uh, only tag titles. His feud with Kushida is very good. Uh, highly recommend going back to look at it. And I hope that Kushida comes back and they can feud again. He's um, <laughs> uh-huh. It would be great to get him for the best of the Super Juniors, just saying. But my personal favorite feud of Desperado's is his feud with Hiromu. The reason I like it so much is because Desperado plays into their history in this really unique way. Even though Desperado and Hiromu were in the same Young Lion class, and even though they both went on excursion to the same place, CMLL in Mexico, they never were there at the same time. Hiromu took a long time to get there, uh, and he also went on excursion in three places, but he also took longer to graduate from the dojo. So by the time that he ended up at CMLL, Desperado was already back to New Japan, so they never met that way. And then when Hiromu, by the time that he was finished at CMLL and came back to New Japan, Desperado was already in NOAA, so they never met there either, which the timing is really something. So they didn't ever, they weren't ever both in New Japan as themselves at the same time until Suzuki-gun came back from NOAA in 2017. So at that point, Desperado just pretended that he had no idea who Hiromu was and that they had never met. And because, you know, he had this whole backstory uh, that they invented that he was from Mexico. And so, of course, he had no idea. He had never met Hiromu. He didn't know who he was. But he would drop little hints that he actually definitely did know who he was. And the, the, he mostly did that in Best of Super Juniors 25. That was sort of when they first started getting to interact uh, in singles matches. Before that, they had only ever interacted in tags. Um, so Desperado would talk about their win-loss record. They didn't have a win-loss record. Um, 
that was with Mikami Kyosuke, a completely different person, totally unrelated to Desperado. And it's that element is sort of a key aspect of their whole feud. And they kept it up for years and years. It's only somewhat resolved recently. And that that ties into uh, the games that Desperado tends to play uh, with kayfabe in general, with his own identities and also with his mask. So Desperado's used basically the same mask design since he debuted as Desperado. He'll change the little details of it and it's sort of been refined over time, but it's basically the same uh, except for like I said, minor details are like the colors. He'll, he'll make it more black or more white. But the way that he wears his masks, he's very careful about, uh, he'll only show a certain amount of his face. And he's got like a system to it. He will only show his jaw and his mouth without paint on them, only if his eyes are covered in mesh. If he's going to show his eyes in the mask, his face will be covered in paint. One time, he made a special... Desperado Doki combination mask that was for his match uh, versus Kasai Jun. And that was the only time that he showed like the upper part of half of his face. But then he made sure uh, to get stabbed in the head with a bunch of skewers like real fast. So even that part of his face was covered in blood real quick. And he only ever wore that mask twice to matches that I'm aware of. The first one was, of course, the Kasai Jun match. And the second one, he made sure to only wear it to a house show in his hometown, uh, which was on the tour where Liger was about to retire. And he also gave Liger a hug, uh, breaking kayfabe, but only on an untelevised show. He's very careful about this kind of thing. Whenever he's unmasked in a match, he always makes sure that he's got like his long hair or something, covers his face up really quick, unless it's a mask against Hiromu. Uh, that's the only time that he will break that rule because those matches are all about his identity and his relationship with Hiromu with regard to that identity. He likes to drop little hints about who he is and then walk them back. He does this a lot with Hiromu, but he also used to do it with Dragon Lee. Uh, he talked about how him and Dragon Lee have a, a win-loss record, which they don't. He talks about Dragon Lee's face, which uh, he should not have ever seen and he also loves to play this kind of game with uh his other other identity as namahage in fantastic mania 2019 el desperado and namahage were on the same tour <laughs> so for the beginning of the tour only namahage was on the tour so el desperado wrote this complex story on his twitter about how el desperado was going home to mexico to see his parents. So that's why he couldn't be on this first half of the tour. And then he wrote about how he was coming back. Then El Desperado and Namahage were both on the same tour. So Desperado would show up and then go off stage. And then Namahage would show up with different nail polish colors and a, a fake tattoo to make sure that you knew there were two different guys, definitely not both the same wrestler. Uh, I love that, <laughs> yeah, I love that so much. It's so good. <laughs> I find it very charming. He also, for a while, had a Namahage Twitter account where he created this whole backstory where Namahage ran a sushi restaurant in Mexico and that he used to make Doki work for him, but he would only pay him in sugar cubes. And <laughs> like 
why? Why go to the effort of making all this up? I don't know, but he he does it, and I appreciate it. I, I find it very entertaining. Um, also, I just am very fascinated by Desperado's reasons for wearing a mask. Recently, he did an interview with Shueisha, which is a manga publisher, and he said in that interview that he wears a mask because reading uh, Kinikuma, which is a wrestling manga, he got the impression that all pro wrestlers were either like big giant guys or they wore a mask and he's not a big giant guy. So he figured he had to wear a mask. But in a New Japan Q&A session, he said that he wears a mask because he lacks self-confidence enough to wrestle without one. So maybe it's some of both. I don't know. I just find all of that very interesting Especially because El Desperado always seems like he wants the crowd to cheer for him, even when he's being a heel. I guess to me, El Desperado is a wrestler. He, he exists in the tension between the desire, the fear of being known and the desire to be loved. Uh, he doesn't want the crowd to see his true face, to somewhat quote the mountain goats, <laughs> but he still <laughs> wants the crowd to love him anyway. I just find it very interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that uh, lack of self-confidence as his sort of reasoning to not wearing his mask. I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the truth is sort of in between all of that, that uh, fear of being known, but wanting um, people to love him as El Desperado. And that's there's something really, really beautiful about that little haunting, actually. I can see the, the anime influence in his work too, though. He, he is very dramatic. His, his, his voice is very dramatic. I think he could be a voice actor in anime if he wanted to be. But um, yeah, I think it might be a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. I think uh, a lot of wrestlers are very much influenced by anime, uh, especially those martial arts as wrestling animes. But it is very interesting that uh, his... He almost had that assumption reading this anime, like, okay, well, I ha- clearly have to be a masked wrestler because I can't see myself in these big guys. Um, that almost echoes to that lack of confidence um, while still being a uh, quote unquote anime influence. I find that really telling. So we've talked about that importance of identity and that confidence and how he has lacked it through the years, but it hasn't stayed that way. He has come into himself, uh, especially recently. Why don't you talk to us about how we get up to where he is now and who he is now as the IWGP junior heavyweight champion? So I think the turning point was with his matches that he had with Kasai Jun, even though he broke his jaw really badly in those in that match. It was still a big turning point to him. It seemed to change the way that he carried himself. Uh, so right before the Best of Super Juniors in 2019, he had set up for the Takataichi show that they do. He had a match versus Kasai Jun. And this was like, he's a huge fan of Kasai. And they had, it ended up being two matches because it wasn't, it's, it wasn't a death match, but they just sort of did death match things anyway. So first they got carried away and it ended, the first one ended in a double count out. And then they got uh, the referee to start a new match. 
and that ended in a disqualification because they started swinging boards with knives on them at each other. And you, that's, that's a, you can't do that in a regular wrestling match, you get disqualified. Uh, so it was a double count on and a double disqualification. But during that match, uh, Kasai punched Desperado in the jaw and broke it really badly. And he was out for quite some time. And that's actually how Doki ended up in the faction because uh, they needed somebody to take Desperado's place. And Doki was there because the whole match was revenge for Doki. So they kind of just put him in there, but it ended up being great. Doki's outstanding. I'm really glad that he was able to join. But after that, it seemed to, the whole experience seemed to give Desperado some confidence. However, in 2020, everything shut down in New Japan because of COVID. It was rough times. And that time period also changed the way that Suzuki Goon sort of fit into the company as a whole. Because everything was rough, there weren't a lot of people there. They started taking on more and more, I guess you could say, responsibilities. They started being like more of a load-bearing aspect of the company, where in, in, in 2015, they could just kind of send them off to Noah and not really miss them that much. You know, here they were extremely essential at this point. Um, so Desperado wasn't able to do the 2019 Best of Super Juniors because he had a broken jaw, but he was a finalist in Best of Super Juniors uh, in 2020 versus Hiromu, which is an amazing match and you should definitely watch it. And then in 2021, he finally won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship, which was the first singles championship belt that he had ever had in his career up to this point. He won it in a three-way match, but he had all kinds of angst about it because he didn't pin the champion to win it. It was a three-way match because Romu had, in, had an injury, so he had to give up the belt. So he kept saying he was an interim champion. He wouldn't wear the belt around his waist. He would just only carry it over his shoulder and so on. And at that point, he also was actually a double champ because he had the tag belts at the same time, too. It was really great. But eventually, he did pin Hiromu and feel that he was no longer an interim champ, started wearing the belt around his waist. So his confidence is really up now. It's great. That's a really good story and all to, to see him come into himself and actually respect his opponents um, because he respects himself now. And he feels that in order to be a good champion, he has to uh, show some of that respect to his opponents as well. So it's, it's a really nice sort of story to, to see develop. And thank you for walking us through it. It's, it's been very satisfying for me to watch it happen. It's not, it's not always that you get to see your personal fave actually get the stuff that you think they deserve to get. And I really appreciate that for me, I did get to see that. It's just a real joy. It's, it's, it's great because he's always been great. Like he has been a great wrestler for a long time. And I'm just really glad that they've given him this opportunity to show off a little bit. So we've been really privileged in that we've been able to hear you talk about how Desperado is not afraid to show things like physical pain and emotional pain and fear in his wrestling. But do you think that his personal philosophies in wrestling make him an unusual member of Suzuki Goon compared to Minoru Suzuki or the other members of the group? I think that Desperado and Suzuki do have similar uh, wrestling philosophies. 
Uh, I'm not sure if that's what drew Desperado to Suzuki originally, uh, or if it's just uh, Suzuki rubbing off on him after all those years of being together. Desperado and Suzuki both have a very similar comprehension of what it means to be a heel. They don't, they don't necessarily think of themselves as heels. Suzuki says that he just does what he wants and that the audience has to decide what they feel about it. And Desperado has said much the same thing. Suzuki believes that a heel isn't um, something that a wrestler decides to be themselves. That's a label that the audience has to assign to a wrestler. It's not something that you should seek out to try to be. Desperado talks about that in uh, much the same uh, way. And they also both have a very strong value of mastering the basics of pro wrestling. Also, most of Suzuki Gun are sundere, which is a Japanese word, uh, which kind of means like they're both hostile, but also affectionate. They're bad guys, but they kind of have a, a kind heart. So Liger has actually commented on this before, specifically about Suzuki. And he believes that Suzuki's fans know this about him, and that's why uh, he has so many fans. <laughs> Uh, and Liger has said that that's what makes Suzuki so cute. He rated him as the <laughs> second cutest wrestler in New Japan. Suzuki's like a scary guy, but then he also holds these volunteer events for people to pick up trash on the beach. When Liger was retiring, Suzuki was just like antagonizing him constantly, terrorizing him, saying he was going to turn his mask into soup. But then after their final match, Suzuki bowed to him head down onto the canvas oh I cried it was so good. I cried so much a beautiful moment a highly recommended match um and, and Tai Chi is like this too he shows his affection a lot with teasing pulling pranks on people and he tries to put on this like tough facade but he has a kind heart in there and even Haruma even calls Despia Nobu Sundere on Twitter on occasion. <laughs> I, I was so ready. I was like, we have to talk about Nobu now and see how he fits into that. <laughs> well, Hiromu insists that Nobu is Sundere. So I, I, I feel like this is a common feature of most of the Suzuki Gun members. Uh, and Desperado fits into that too. So yeah, you, you definitely would say that no, he is not an unusual member of Suzuki Goon in the long short of it. No, I don't think so. Um, okay. he, he was just, when he joined, he was young and everyone else in the faction was more experienced at that time. Uh, now he has other people in the faction too who are newer to wrestling. So it sort of evened out the feel of the faction a little bit. So it's less that he was sort of an odd one out in this heel faction and more that the others were just better at hiding their heart. I think so. I think so. So something you said in the past about Desperado in regards to his wrestling philosophy, when, since we're on the subject of wrestling philosophies, is that he's interested in making ugliness beautiful in his work. And I absolutely love that. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Personally, I think this probably ties into Desperado's love of deathmatch wrestling. He doesn't really get to do it much, but he really likes deathmatch wrestling. And he 
incorporates the pain of wrestling into his work rather than obscuring it. Some wrestlers have a really slick style where they, it's, it's very a choreographed look, but Desperado is not particularly like that. He's not flashy. He tries to tap into something real in, his, in the way that he approaches his wrestling. He's said before that wrestling isn't glitter and lights. It's painful. An example of this in Best of the Super Juniors 25, he had his finger dislocated in a match, but he made sure to wait until he was on camera before he dramatically popped it back into joint. <laughs> uh, I guess the best example of this would be his uh, match with Kasai June. So during this match, he broke his jaw. Kasai punched him in the jaw and his jaw was broken. Desperado kept wrestling the whole match with a broken jaw, which he never would have been able to get away with, except that his mask covered the lower half of his face. Cut a promo with a broken jaw, gave his backstage comments with a broken jaw. From then forward, he incorporated this injury into his mask design. So his mask design, like I said, it tends to be changed very little over time, but he has incorporated the break in his jaw into the jaw bone of its mask in gold. It looks like kintsugi, Japanese joinery, where you repair broken pottery with gold joinery, uh, which makes the break part of the work. I think that's beautiful. I wish he wouldn't wrestle matches with a broken jaw, but... (laughs) There's a give and take to that, but I do uh, really admire the pageantry that he is willing to put into that pain and even to take that pain and to wear it proudly like a badge uh, that something is broken doesn't mean it's not beautiful and I think that really speaks to El Desperado I think that's a really incredible thing in all so I can definitely see that whole philosophy of uh, making ugliness beautiful in the most uh, literal form it makes sense when you think of the the impact that Kasai had on him. He, like I said, he's been a huge fan of his for a long time. And this is the guy who incorporates all the scars all over his body into his performance. I think that the influence is there. I can see a little bit of like tying that into his relationship with Hiromo too, because isn't Hiromo the one who has, does Hiromo have a jacket with the sunflowers that go up his spine? Is that what he has? Yes, he does. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's a good catch. In some ways that to me is incredibly similar. And maybe that's not necessarily like the way that Hiromu would word the way that he views that, but I think it actually is incredibly similar. No, I I absolutely agree with you. Uh It's a different, um, they have very different aesthetic taste, but it is very similar. Yeah. They feel like, uh, different sides of the same coin in a lot of ways um almost the the sun and the moon of each other yeah uh, De- desperado has said that before that um he's the shadow he's Hiroma's shadow where dragon lee is Hiroma's reflection right interesting very mm-hmm. interesting i like that that was a really really good connection i don't think i ever would have made that so thank you wow a little blown away <laughs> <laughs> suzuki Goon has undergone a lot of changes over the years and this can you talk about maybe the changes of tone in the faction and how has el desperado been affected by this growth of the faction over the years they're definitely more of a tweener faction these days than they used to be 
which I would never have believed if you told me a few years ago. Back when I first started watching, they were heels in a similar way to House of Torture behaves nowadays. They were constantly interfering in matches, always with the foreign objects and and you know so on and so on which i loved because i always cheered for them and wanted them to win so i what can i say but they they don't do that anymore uh i can't even remember the last time that someone has interfered in a suzuki gun match to help someone win yeah they've transitioned to more of a tweener faction which it seems like it's almost inevitable that that happens to factions in new japan like that happened to chaos It happened to uh, LIJ, which is also really wild to go back and watch old LIJ matches and they're just heels. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, they used to be like this. Um, Yeah, they definitely have a change. And I think House of Torture has picked up the position that they used to be in and they're not as good at it. (laughs) (laughs) How do you think El Desperado specifically has been affected by that change over the years. I think it is much better for him now than it used to be. I think that he's flourishing in this uh, more positive environment. He always has wanted the crowd to cheer for him and now they can cheer for him because he's fighting show with a wrench. So (laughs) (laughs) he can sort of still be a bad guy. Sometimes he hasn't given up all of his questionable behaviors, but he can play a face too, depending on the match. Also, I'm really enjoying Dangerous Techers. They, they, I think, have also really benefited from being allowed to lean more towards the, the face side of things. I know some Suzuki Gun fans miss the old completely bad, bad guys, and I love them too, but I like this version as well. Oh yeah, there's like there's merits to to having both of these very different versions of the group. And I'm wondering too, do you feel like Desperado could be sort of a leading factor in some of these changes? Do you think that he's a part of that growth and that change in this leaning towards them being tweeners? Or is it solely based on the environment that New Japan creates for itself in creating sort of this one super heel group problem that then forces the other groups to then all have to react accordingly and then essentially become babyface and um, tweener groups. I've been thinking about this recently because I do think that this change was sped up because of the pandemic situation. But if you think back to early 2020 and late 2019, I think even then the faction was already starting to lean more towards being a tweener faction. Part of it, I think, was them adopting Doki into the group. And everybody's just so nice to him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they tease him, but they don't tease him in the same way that they used to tease El Desperado. But I'm not really sure. You can't be too Sundere when it's Doki. (laughs) (laughs) The Dere just pops right out of you. Exactly, exactly. I think that's fair. I think, especially based on listening to you talk and really thinking about this, I think it's, I think New Japan does sort of inevitably force these factions to, if they're putting all of their energy into Bullet Club being the heel group, 
and that includes House of Torture, then inevitably it's going to force the the rest of the groups to act accordingly and to and to become you know faces to react to that. So that's a huge thing. But I do think that in just El Desperado's natural growth and his natural charisma and his natural interest as a wrestler, I think it's I do think it's probably a little bit of column A and column B perhaps in the dynamics of that group. But I, I do think that part of it was also dangerous techers because they're very hard to boo. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when they're out there in their tag matches, trying to get that hot tag and caring about each other, mm-hmm. it's hard for them to not seem like the face in a oh, match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely think that was part of it as well. And these factions have been around for a long time. So you do start to get those natural uh, relationships built between them and they become more affectionate for each other. So it almost, it goes back to what you were saying, where oftentimes it feels like an inevitability in New Japan, where they sort of move into that tweener, almost face category. And I can't help but wonder if it's just because they've worked with each other to that point where they all genuinely like each other and that um, friendship and that bond that they have gets them over with the audience as a result. And you can see that with Dangerous Techers. You can even see that with Desperado where um, his relationship with Tai Chi has improved substantially. I think you're right. And the faction is surprisingly old. It will be 11 years old when this podcast is posted. So they've been around for a really long time. Uh, People, I think, have grown a lot of affection for the group over time. And Suzuki-gun is an incredibly unusual faction in that its leader is a freelancer and owns the trademark, but they are also an undeniably important part of modern day New Japan. You said it yourself that they've really just become a load bearer of the company and the way that they've booked the main event feuds and their Faction warfare has become a really huge part of the company. So what does Suzuki-gun as a brand represent to New Japan? And how has this changed from where they started to where they are today? I know we've talked a little bit about it, but I would love for you to expand. So something that sticks out to me right away is uh, Suzuki's been going on these tours of the United States by himself. He just got back from his second one recently, where he's wrestling all over the place with all different companies just because he wants to, uh, which isn't something that a wrestler who is signed with a company can just like do on a whim, but he sure can. And I think it's, it's good for New Japan that he can do this because people in the United States love Suzuki and <laughs> they love seeing him. So if he wants to go out here, it can only expand uh, New Japan's reach. He was wrestling over on AEW before, you know, New Japan was really working very well with AEW because he's a freelancer. He can do whatever he wants. But it is really strange because it's his, even the name of the faction belongs to him. It's, It's wild to me that they let this occur at all. Uh, They don't even sell Suzuki-gun items in the New Japan store in Japan because you have to buy them from Suzuki. (laughs) They made some kind of deal with Suzuki so you can buy them in the States, but you can't do that in the Japanese store. I think it goes to show how valuable the faction is 
that they agree to this kind of situation at all. And I just think with COVID, they leaned even hev more heavily on Suzuki Goon than they ever had in the past, uh, especially during COVID. Hiromu also injured, uh, he had that bad chest injury, so he was out for a while too. And the juniors division was too small. <laughs> so they were really depending on them at that time. Uh, and I think that is part of why they ended up being pushed towards being tweeners as well. So something that I'm really interested in talking to you about is that I feel like leadership in current day Suzuki Goon seems to be this topic that comes up really frequently to the point where there's a lot of people that will fantasy book that they want Zach to take over. And then it becomes something entirely different than what it is right now. But who do you view as the current leader of Suzuki Goon? Suzuki. <laughs> <laughs> it is a really good question though, because you mentioned that uh, Taichi doesn't call him boss anymore. And you've mentioned that Suzuki is, you know, going away in America all the time. So there really is a lot of uh, merit to asking, who do you view as the leader? And why is it still Suzuki? I'm dying to hear your uh, thoughts on that. <laughs> so it's true. I agree. There's a lot to talk about. So I've been watching New Japan since 2017. People have been saying that Tai Chi was going to take over Suzuki Goon since I started watching in 2017. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. It might. I, I don't know, but not, not yet. Uh, he's been running the faction for 11 years. The only faction that's currently active in New Japan that's older is Chaos, and they switched leaders. I mean, eventually Suzuki presumably will have to retire, but <laughs> I don't know. Presumably. Uh, presumably. And honestly, I kind of feel like the faction is more solid in some ways than it used to be. I don't feel a lot of the tension that I used to feel especially when Suzuki-gun members fight each other. I feel like by becoming more of a tweener faction, they're also more solid in their footing. But I don't know. I mean, who, who's to say what the future will bring? So then that brings me to my, my next question then. So let's just say we know that Desperado is really like stepping into his own right now and he's finding himself positioned at the top of the junior heavyweight scene and he's really popular right now. Is there ever a point where you think that Desperado could make a case for leadership? I don't think that would be something that he would be particularly interested in, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it'll, I think it'll be Tai Chi. <laughs> <laughs> very fair. I, I think it would be very interesting to see El Desperado step into a leadership role, but I think I agree with you that I don't know if he would really want that. Um, I'm not sure I can see him moving into it and if he did it would definitely be a very interesting character arc it'd be a very interesting direction for him to take he's sort of a mentor to doki in a way so that's a little bit like that i think he is a leader in the junior heavyweight scene um in general i think he and hiromu have a case of being leaders of that division but that is definitely a very different thing to leading a faction yeah, his his approach to that has really changed too. He used to always talk about how he would let everyone else build up the division and then once they were done building it up, he would come in and take it over. <laughs> but like his whole approach to it has changed since he's gotten the belt. 
he's really grown into being the champ and I love to see it. I'm glad too that your opinion is that it should be Tai Chi if anyone were to take over from Suzuki because I know people like to think that I mean at least a lot of people on my timeline on Twitter <laughs> like to put Zach in that position and I feel like that's the one move that if you do that it's not Suzuki Goon ever again. So I feel like it really does have to stay within that core group. And that's why my personal opinion, I would rather it pass to someone like Tai Chi than go to Zack Sabre Jr. But that's just my opinion. I see the argument for it. I don't know. Maybe they can be uh, faction co-captains. Who knows? That would be, I think, very fitting for where they are now. That just feels very like, I like day Suzuki Goon. Yeah, I like that a lot. I feel like that would be a really fun gimmick for them. and everybody would keep wondering if like one is more powerful than the other and they just simply don't care (laughs) well tai chi already made it very clear that zach is stronger than him yeah Uh, he talks about it all the time so (laughs) so could you ever see el desperado in another unit in njpw or could you only ever see him as a member of suzuki goon or i guess tai chi goon if it ever happens (laughs) Uh, personally I don't think so I see Desperado as a very good fit for Suzuki Goon as much as I think it caused him problems to join Suzuki Goon right before they left for Noah that early in his career when Desperado was a young lion he used to show up early to shows and train with Suzuki uh, before doing everything else that the young lions all have to do which is pretty brave to see to seek that guy out and <laughs> sign up for all that. But he did that because something in him compelled him to do that. Um, he felt some kind of draw to uh, Suzuki and Suzuki's methods. And I think that's where he belongs is the place that he chose for himself. Yeah, I'm actually getting really emotional. It was uh, really beautifully said. And I love that uh, idea of him falling into where he always wanted to be and that place that he has chosen for himself really coming to suit him as he has become a champion, as you've stated, where he's really come into his own as a champion. You can also say that he's sort of come into his own as a member of Suzuki Goon as well. And I think that's beautiful. So Thistle, I've been really excited to ask you about this because I know that you've got a few hot takes, just a few, but (laughs) What are your thoughts on the current booking of New Japan's junior division? And how do you see the various factions playing into that booking? So I only have lukewarm takes. None <laughs> of my takes are hot. Honestly, as long as they keep letting Hiromu and Desperado have singles matches, I can't complain very much. However, I really would like to see them bring more people in from other companies and other places. Uh, I know that's a lot easier said than done. Please make it happen. Desperado always talks about how he wants to fight different people from all different companies. He wants to fight Chris Brooks. He wants to fight Sasuke. Let him fight them. Bring them over. Um, The junior division is especially thin these days because of all the problems getting people in from other countries. So I hope they can resolve that. Uh, And in general, I just wish that New Japan would give more to their junior division. They have so many amazing junior wrestlers there. 
and I know that the company is very set in their traditions. They don't change drastically. It's just a, a part of how New Japan is. And traditionally, they're, they value the heavyweights more. But their junior wrestlers are amazing, and I love them. Uh, they should have more main events. They should have more wins against heavyweights. The junior heavyweights are not lesser than the heavyweights. They're great. And get rid of the height requirements for the dojo. Come on. I do want to say to that point, because you and I have talked about this recently, like the way that height is talked about, you would think that Desperado is a much smaller man than he is. Desperado is 5'10". Like what? Desperado is, is not a a small man. Desperado oh is like an average height for I think a man in the world. And he was not tall enough to make it into the dojo the first time. And he wouldn't be tall enough to make it in right now with the current height requirements. I think they're back in place in the New Japan dojo. So I don't and like you know you know how I feel about height in wrestling and how it's so irrelevant to me. Um so I just I I just you know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think that just felt sort of mind boggling to me, but like Desperado is, is, is not a very small man. So that stuff just like kind of blows the mind when it, I've learned through Thistle, how that's like really held him back at points in his career. The, the other thing I guess that gets me is, I mean, New Japan is the home of Liger, you know, they have Hiromu. They know that people that aren't super tall can still be very popular and successful wrestlers. So Desperado has had a long journey to the top of the junior division. Speaking of the junior division booking, what do you think is next for him? And I'm talking both in 2022 and long-term goals. I'm not really sure. Um, Upcoming, he has a title defense before the best of super juniors. So I hope that he will remain the champion going into this year's Best of Super Juniors. He also has another match against Kaisai Jun that's coming up, I believe on May 7th, which is three years almost to the day from his uh, last match against Kaisai Jun, where he broke his jaw right before the Super Juniors. And this one is also right before this year's Best of the Super Juniors, which is very uh, delightful in its spiteful stubbornness of him to time it the exact same. Uh, but this is a tag match with uh, Despi and Doki versus Kasai and Hanma. That's what he's got coming up immediately, his long-term. I just know I will be there watching it. Sometimes that's all you need is to know you're going to be there and you know that you're going to enjoy it because he is stupendous and he will make sure that it is entertaining. I'd love to see him come to the States more so I can go see him wrestle in person. <laughs> that so is deserved. We got to get that going for you. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll just have to go to Japan and do it. That sort of leads me into kind of the next question is, and this is a, a very hard one to predict, but what do you see as next for suzuki Goon as a faction? Since you said it yourself, they're celebrating their 11th anniversary as of this recording. So happy birthday, suzuki Goon. I don't know, but I hope that they can continue as Suzuki-gun for quite some time into the future, if possible. A truly beloved faction, and if they're ever to like fall apart and split up, it would leave a huge gap in New Japan's structure. So I hope that they can continue to stay together 
and I hope that they don't become Tai Chi Green anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting because we talked about it on the DDT factions episode. Takagi sees factions as needing to change in order for a company to continue where um, in this case in New Japan, it you seem to feel it's a little different where Suzuki-gun should continue for the good of the company rather than maybe change being a good thing. Well, part of that's just my selfishness because I okay. love I mean, but it's very interesting. <laughs> in general, I think New Japan is very different from DDT in that they are very conservative. They're very traditional. They stick to their ways. They stick to their patterns. If you like those patterns and you like those ways, which I mostly do, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it, but they're not the the pure chaos of DDT for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So Thistle, what Suzuki-gun matches do you recommend for those people listening and who want to catch up on some matches that you would recommend for them, but also what El Desperado matches are you recommending as well? So I got a little bit overwhelmed with this because there's so many members of Suzuki-gun uh, <laughs> and they've all been, well, many of them have been wrestling for a very long time. For Suzuki, I would recommend his whole feud with Liger running up to Liger's retirement just outstanding very emotional match and storyline and for tai chi i want to i want to recommend his match from the 2020 g1 versus ibushi my favorite tai chi matches are when he puts his whole heart into it he really sincerely tries he doesn't cheat or try to take the easy way out but really gives it his all and he really did in that match um, he also had a really good king of pro wrestling match uh against takagi this week if you want a more recent one for him for mikami kyosuke completely unrelated <laughs> to el desperado Hiromu's uh debut match as a young lion was against mikami kyosuke and you can watch it on new japan's youtube channel it's a very good match and i highly recommend watching it right before you watch El Desperado's singles match against, uh, first singles match against Hiromu. You'll see some interesting parallels, a lot of the same moves, um, even the same referee in both matches. For Desperado recommendations, if you want to see face El Desperado, I would recommend his match against Kenny Omega in Best of the Super Juniors 21 uh, from back in 2014. You can see Desperado get his feelings hurt because the crowd's cheering for Kenny Omega, even though Kenny Omega is being a jerk and Desperado is being a very nice man. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) Oh, my heart's broken. You can also see him give his rosary to a small child in the crowd. Uh, It's a very good match. For a classic Suzuki-gun heel-style match, I recommend Desperado's singles match against Kushida from 2017 uh, for the junior heavyweight belt. It's got cheating. It has foreign objects. It has a guitar case that Desperado wrote a quote from the Helsing anime onto outside interference. Desperado takes his mask off. 
he does a really good tope, highly recommend. And I, I rewatched it recently because I was trying to figure out what it is that makes Suzuki Goon so charming to me when they do these things and House of Torture annoying to me when they do very similar things. And I still don't know the answer. That's <laughs> <laughs> fair. Super fair. I, I think that's, I love that. And that's fascinating. And I think that's probably worth exploring someday. If you figure it out, let me know. For a more modern El Desperado match, if you can find it, I recommend his match against Kasai Jun with the caveats that they bleed all over the place and El Desperado legitimately gets his jaw broken and then finishes the match. If you're okay with that, it's a very good match. I had to watch that one on Facebook and I hope that there are, yeah, I, I hope that there are better ways to watch this one. But if you don't mind digging a little for it, it is really worth the watch. It exists on DVD, but elsewhere, I have no idea. New Japan's been doing this thing recently now where they air the Takataichi shows as uh, pay-per-views that you can buy through their website. Um, but this was before that was all set up. Also, I recommend any and all Desperado versus Hiromu matches, they're all outstanding. Every single one. <laughs> so what other wrestling are you watching right now? What are some of your other favorite promotions, wrestlers, feuds? What stands out to you currently? Right now I'm watching DDT. I still have not gotten over Damnation splitting up. Um, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but I love to see Endo as a champ. And I've been watching the King of Street Wrestling tournament and just the them wrestling on the train, all that stuff. Uh, it's a, it's a, a breath of fresh air. And I've been watching Choker Pro intermittently. Also a delightful breath of fresh air. Other than that, I'm always supporting the colony, my favorite ants. Mm -hmm. um, Fire Ant is off doing something or other right now. Uh, so he hasn't been with the colony recently, but I'm always cheering for my favorite ants, green ant and thief ant. Everywhere they go, I'm supporting them. So we're coming to a close here, Thistle, and thank you so much for joining us for this. We love listening to you talk about Despi and New Japan. You are such a wealth of knowledge and we feel very privileged that you came on to talk to us today. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug and um, to, and if you could reiterate for everyone what your, um, your social media is where people can actually get in touch with you. Uh, I have nothing really to plug, no projects or anything going on. If you wanna see my art, you can go to thistle underscore art on Twitter. If you want, if you're on Tumblr again, and you want to follow my wrestling Tumblr, it's thistle dropkick, not missile, thistle like the flower. Um, <laughs> on Tumblr. Neither one is that active, but that's what I got. I didn't even realize the pun the first time you said it. So <laughs> I love that. That's really good. All right. Well, thank you again. We had such a good time and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to and supporting Kickout. We are so grateful for all of your incredible and overwhelming support and enthusiasm. We have reached over 100 Spotify followers, and we are truly just so blown away all the time by your support. 
As always, please don't forget to subscribe to or follow us on your platform of choice so that you can get our episodes first when they drop. Subscribing to us and giving us a five-star review or rating on your preferred platform really helps us as we try to grow Kickout. So please help us out by doing that. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. And you can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y Star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. You can always check us out at kickout299.wordpress.com. We have things like reviews and different articles up there. And please give us an email at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. This is where you can submit questions and feedback to us. And if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog or podcast, you can do so there as well. I also wanted to make a correction from our previous episode, The Life and Legacy of Jumbo Saruta. I realized that I messed up in my notes and only gave you nine of Jumbo's trials when he actually had 10. I totally missed Fritz von Erich. So apologies for that, but please make sure you check that out online. And due to some life stuff and scheduling issues, we are not able to bring you the episode that we teased on Keiji Muto and we'll reschedule that for a different time. But fear not, we will still have a really great relaxed fit episode coming at you on May 24th, where Alicia and I will take you through four matches that mean a lot to us. I'm really excited to share them with you. So please look out for that. As always, make sure you follow our Twitter to see what else we have planned for coming episodes and projects. Thank you all so much, and we will talk to you soon.